0: podcast has bad words. <laughs> Hello patrons. This is the minimalist private podcast and we're here with Peter Rollins. Uh, while we were taking a break here Pete was, was asking us about sharing clips from the maximum episodes I was saying well there are some things we talk about on Patreon that we don't talk about in public. This is like semi-public, right? Right. This is like if you are a stand-up comic and you're at the comedy store in the belly room and you're like testing some things out. Mm. And so our audience here on Patreon especially gives us the room to sort of screw up out loud in real time, Mm -hmm. extemporaneously, without uh, fear of scorn or or too much judgment. They'll give us feedback and say, hey, maybe you should have considered this point of view or or whatever, but it's never just like, hey, you guys are stupid. Right. Which is like the YouTube comments. Right, (laughs) yeah. Uh, and, and and so yeah, I, I, I no, I'm gonna stop putting that comment up. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you can't. I mean, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> can you just elaborate a <laughs> little bit? <laughs> You're stupid
1: because yeah. Yeah. well, there's a difference between criticism and feedback, right? Yeah. I mean, criticism is like you suck. Goodbye. Feedback is you suck. But here's why you suck. Yeah. <laughs> and here's how you can fix. And here's it. how you can fix it. Like yeah. feedback
0: presents a, a viable solution. Uh, and by the way it doesn't mean we have to take it I might disagree with the fact yeah. that when you say hey you guys suck or, but
1: we respect someone else's opinion and perspective for especially sure. if they're on Patreon right? exactly they, yeah. they've, they've made it over the, uh, the, the barrier there I they, want to say something like Patreon audience is like the only audience that we actually respect <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely taking a clip of that don't <laughs> tell that yeah right exactly <laughs> yeah, like, you're going to hear that
0: everywhere <laughs> but um are yeah, be cancelled so, so if you are a Patreon supporter it means you're listening to this right now head on over over, uh, we are supporters of Peter Rollins Patreon, yeah, and and he produces all kinds of stuff there: courses, and lectures, and 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 uh, interviews, and, and there's a ton of things on his Patreon. We'll put a link to that in the the show notes here. Since you're you're already a Patreon supporter, you already have a Patreon account. If you want to support someone who's who's doing great work, uh, independent work, then that's definitely the place to go. So yeah,
2: and if you you know you just want to move over um, from the
3: minimalist, <laughs> <to>
0: mine, <laughs> that's totally might as fun. well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. we'll make do with the lack yeah right (laughs) uh Um, yeah so we have so much to talk about today on the minimal episode pete we were talking about guilt and so i figure maybe we could we could get in back into that um because well we were having this whole whole discussion there and and there's so many things i want to talk about with respect to guilt but maybe you could you could start it off for us
2: great yeah so in the in the other episode we're talking about the way lack subjectively appears in in our lives mm-hmm. and i was mentioning three places that lack can be experienced and one is the lack of life death uh, the small part by the way is you go to a doctor because you're afraid you have something and they say oh no you're okay and you go oh, my goodness i nearly died but then the strong form is the doctor says yeah but you're still going to die mm. you're also going to die if that you know that's right. the strong form mm-hmm. um, Guilt is another way of kind of like, if you feel like you're not living up to something, so there's a lack. This is who I am, there's some, There's a way I would like to be, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not there, so there's a lack. And that's guilt the strong form is condemnation Mm. which is where you feel that there's nothing you could do to ever be who you want to be Mm. and then the third is called meaninglessness where you lack meaning in your life my job is meaningless my family's meaningless to me Mm. and the strong form of that is when you feel like nothing could fill the meaning
0: in your life no matter what job you had Mm. so guilt well, let's let, so let's pause okay. on that. Yeah. So it sounds to me like what you're describing is often religion promises a solution to all three immediately. Oh, yeah, right. Interesting. So death, meaninglessness, and guilt yeah. uh, is you know, if you just say the right words or, or, or do the right thing, depending on on the religion. If you pray right? to the right god, yeah, yeah, and, and and you know, and it's different even amongst religions. So I grew up Catholic. Uh, sorry to offend you Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> they built us. walls to keep us yeah, out that's right yeah uh, <laughs> Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah and so uh, uh peace from belfast
1: well it's it's in well you know to me uh my my gut is saying that all this kind of leads back to acceptance in some way where like a if, if you believe in god then you believe in this the highest power this almighty who created everything and if you do these things you can get rid of the guilt you can get rid of the, the lack, essentially, because that, God, will, witness, God will accept you. What do you mean?
0: So so it, so the Catholic versus Protestant, uh, mm-hmm. not, not that either one of us are one of those, but we'll play the role for this yeah. discussion, yeah. right? So Catholics say you have to do the right things in order to... To get
1: God to accept you.
0: Right. Okay. Uh, the Protestant argument would then be well, you're already accepted and you can't do anything that's but it, going to be good yeah, enough. Yeah, so it both goes back to acceptance.
1: It, it all goes back to... Religion showing you how to how to how God can accept you, which really, if you think about it, Mm -hmm. it teaches you how to accept yourself in a way. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Uh, But but it's it's
0: different ways of acceptance. Yes, it is different way of 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 acceptance. So, Pete, well, Mm. how do how do we reconcile all of this?
2: All this, yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, broadly speaking yeah you're buying on in a sense of um there's two ways to read religion basically and if you want to put it in two buckets Mm -hmm. there's the type of religion which promises to fill the lack to get rid of it so um and religion does that in two one of two ways you got religions of hedonism and they promise that you can have wholeness completeness you can get the thing that will make you happy and complete and joyful in this life or the next Mm -hmm. and then there's religions of nihilism that say that you can get rid of your desire entirely, mm. and so no longer desire, oh, and be and be caught up in the anxiety of can desire. Can you give some examples of those? Monks, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's ver- like the best way. But is what's on the, the
0: hedonist he- example? So
2: Western Western religions tend towards hedonism. So and in the other Joel words, Joel Osteen, yeah. prosperity gospel thing. Yeah. But like, uh, yeah, so and, and various forms of Christianity will tend towards like you can get the object of your desire either in heaven or you can get it now on earth, prosperity mm-hmm, gospel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Eastern religions tend towards religions of nihilism. So they tend towards get rid of your desire. Um, so, you know, think of Zen Buddhism, Westernized Buddhism, et cetera. Sure. So there's 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 exceptions to both sides, wow. but you can broadly see the two tendencies.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so another way to say it is like Eastern religion says uh, you're gonna be happier if you can get rid of those desires, yeah. where Western religion says Here's how you can fulfill all those desires. And be happier. Yeah. And be happier,
2: exactly. Exactly. So mm. then my heart is restless until it finds its rest in you as Augustine. So you see that notion that your desire can be fulfilled, and the other is your desire needs to be abolished.
3: Mm.
2: Now and in contrast to those, there's what's called the religion of the absurd, which I'm a fan of. <laughs> uh, but uh, but but that <clears throat> if we put those in one bucket <clears throat> sorry put those in one bucket, then the Religion of the Absurd is where the idea that you you come to, you rob the lack of its sting. The idea is not that you get rid of your desire, but you get rid of the, the negative dimension of your desire. You're able to enjoy the struggle of life. So it's not getting rid of it and it's not fulfilling it. It's somehow finding your place within it. Mm. And I would say that this is what I would call radical theology or pyro-theology. Mm-hmm. And can I give you one reading of the, of the Garden of Eden that will show yeah. this, right? Yeah. Yes. So you've got... It basically is an Oedipal story in a way. Um, in Oedipus, by the way, you've got this kid, who wants to sleep with his mum, doesn't know it's his mum, right? Mm-hmm. But he's, he's, this, he's cursed with this thing, he's going to, you know, have sex with his mum. Mm. His father gets in the way, he kills his father, sleeps with his mother, mm-hmm. and it's a disaster, right? Mm-hmm. Now Freud liked this story, because in a way, the mother is the symbol of wholeness and completeness, returning to the womb, oceanic oneness, right? right. So Oedipus wants to get back to oceanic oneness mm-hmm. with the mother. The father is what gets in the way, the law. Mm-hmm. He kills the father, gets what he wants, and it's a disaster, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's a basically be careful what you wish for. Sorry, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, the story, the, the, the Bible starts with a similar type of story. Adam and Eve walking in a garden right then there's a prohibition and behind the prohibition there's a fruit tree you eat of this fruit tree you will be like God mm. which means you will lack the lack you will be whole and complete because God is whole and complete right mm. so, and then what happens they break through the prohibition they get the fruit that they think will make them whole and complete it's not a blessing but it's a curse right mm-hmm. so the radical reading of this is to say that right at the beginning of the text right um, you have this desire to be whole and complete by getting object a the apple right let's say it's an apple computer right you you get the apple computer you'll be whole and complete you break through the prohibition you save up the money you get the object and it doesn't satisfy you Mm. and in the biblical story there's the serpent the serpent is the one who promises you can be whole and complete Just Mm -hmm. eat that fruit. Mm. Freud calls that the superego. It's the voice that's within you saying, if only you're nicer to your mum, you'll be whole and complete. Mm -hmm. If only you get that, if only you have sex with more people, Mm -hmm. you'll be whole and complete. Mm -hmm. If you know that voice and we think we have to obey the voice. Now, I would say confessional religion is satanic. I didn't mean that in a jokey way, but in the sense of it's the voice that says you can be whole and complete. It's listening to the voice and going, if only you get here, then everything will be great. Grace is the technology that exercises that voice mm. that says you don't have to get anywhere. Now you brought up a very good objection. Yeah, so do you want yeah. to do the objection? So, so, yeah,
0: of, so, yeah. So 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 you well, your the argument is? Well, you're already there with grace. You you you, you don't need to you know uh, to take the rosary beads and do the appropriate prayer or or do the particular task or or adjust your behaviors so that you do X, Y, and Z in order to be. Uh, more godlike or Jesus like, or whatever um, the analogy is. And my, I guess my question or the argument I was having this argument with my wife recently uh, because I think the thing that we, we talk about is you know, you, you are already there, you're already accepted, you're already whatever. Is um, but what if you're just behaving like a total piece of shit. What if you're being a bad person, an evil person, which some people are like
1: they intentionally, they can look in the mirror and say, yeah, you're evil. And that's right. what you do. And, yeah. And,
0: and my, my, my rebuttal of that is like, it seems to me that you would need to change those behaviors in order. You, you should have to change certain behaviors. Mm. If you're behaving in a way that is not just bad for the greater good, but bad to, to other people and, and bad to yourself.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. So that's, that's the response. Funnily enough, this mimics, um, a, a thing in the Bible where Paul says, you know, we get rid of the law, but then if you get rid of the law, then, you know, are well, you not going to sin more, right? So there's this thing in, in the, and it's also in Freud, it's like, is this question of, surely our guilt and surely our desire to change is what helps us to change. If you get rid of that, mm-hmm. then people will just go crazy. Mm-hmm. But the argument is this. So funnily enough, people think, for example, that repentance comes before forgiveness, right? So that's the national in a natural way as you say sorry and mm-hmm. i say it's all right don't mm-hmm. worry about it funnily enough some people say that one of the only innovations that jesus had in terms of morality which is just quite standard morality is that it's what sw- sw- switched around there's forgiveness without repentance and actually it's the forgiveness that leads to the repentance mm-hmm. so weirdly i say to you You've done something bad. You've been an mm-hmm. arrogant asshole to me. You know, and then
1: commenting on your YouTube videos. Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and
2: you're all defensive. You're like, I didn't do anything wrong. I think your stuff is rubbish. I'm just letting you know. <laughs> uh, and then I turn around to you and I say, listen, mate, it's OK. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And then you go, oh, yeah, no, maybe I was a bit of an asshole. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right? That's mm. an example of. And so this is what Freud. So here's a clinical example. This woman who's sleeping around. And it's a true clinical example. uh, She feels guilty. She's always going out the weekend, having sex with people, worried about getting sexually transmitted Mm -hmm. uh, infections. And she knows that this is a damaging lifestyle to her. Mm -hmm. Uh, She feels guilty about it, really guilty. Mm -hmm. And she's at least going, well, at least I feel guilty about it. That stops me doing it every weekend. Sometimes I feel so guilty, I don't go out and whatever. So she's going, at least I have the guilt. Interesting. But then during the therapy, the guilt begins to diminish. She, the, the, the therapist helps her go like, don't feel guilty about what your parents think, what you think, what your culture thinks. What happens is as the guilt diminishes, so does the desire to transgress the guilt. So mm-hmm. what you discover is that the activity is actually generated by what it looks like it's opposing. Mm-hmm. So weirdly, the law generates the desire to transgress the law. Mm-hmm. The name for this is love, by the way. Love is a form of overcoming the law, not by abolishing it, but by taking its prohibition away. Mm. This doesn't work for everybody, by the way, but in general, the more people try to change, so say you're an alcoholic, and you, through sheer force of will, and you're good, sheer force of will, you stop being an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. If you haven't experienced grace, you'll then get addicted to Diet Coke, to CrossFit, to to tidy in your house obsessively right it'll come out in different ways
0: but there are there are better things <clears throat> to be addicted to
2: yes absolutely and crossfit's better than alcohol well i don't think so but <laughs> you know <laughs> but then, you know cleaning your house is probably better so that's very true however grace is the experience in which you feel this sense of which you you can accept yourself in your being. And I would say that's when the real change can happen. So in AA, there's 12 steps, but step zero is just being in a room that per- completely accepts you for who you are. Mm. I would say that's the best mechanism for change.
1: Mm. Let's talk yeah. about- uh, well, on. well, One second. So this the, about the person who is just a piece of trash. Right. I would say that that person who is, who is evil, they actually are acting still based on the lack like there's something that they're missing that they uh when they act evil, they're feel they feel like they're feeling filling that lack. Mm. And uh so, so in a sense, like there's still there's still a lack there that they're trying to fill, I guess is what oh, I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is the breaking bad
0: thing, right? Like yeah. it's it's you know, you've seen the series Breaking oh, Bad. Yeah, okay. Bad. So so I was very lit, by the way. I watched it years after
1: it came out. It's very good. <laughs> Me too. I, I just yeah. finished
0: it with my wife like a few
1: weeks uh, ago. Oh, wow. so, yeah. I broke my uh, back a year ago. And that, and, and I watched it then because I had nothing to do but lay lay around on my back. Breaking back. Breaking back. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like it, it, what you see there is. An
0: evil person doesn't become an evil person immediately after one change. It's a bunch of small sort of indiscretions uh, and and justifications. And and it it is, at first, the justifications actually make sense. Mm. And each individual justification even tends to make sense. It's a a tiny leap each time until all of a sudden you're shooting someone in the face because, well, each justification led me to to, to that place. And, And so it's not just this immediate hundred and... 80 degree turn it's small pivots yeah. over yeah. a protracted period of time that, that lead to those bad behaviors and i guess what i'm saying is um it, when you look at someone like walter white who if he wasn't the main character of that show he we would have just look at him as an evil terrible awful human being right uh it, you you look at him and, and you're saying well he isn't enough he, we shouldn't accept someone like Walter white right uh, because we don't accept the behavior of, of a person like that yeah. right yeah. And, and maybe the difference is we can accept the person without accepting the behavior like might might be the, the line to toe there
2: yeah and, and there's two I'd love to make a distinction between two types of evil um, and this uh, this uh, this is great we could be here all day so mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, yeah um, there's um there's utilitarian evil mm-hmm. let's call that badness and utilitarian badness is bad what's called pathological i.e. you do bad things because you judge it's going to like you rob because you want money right, right. you want it anyway and that's that's the evil that we understand mm-hmm. and um but then there is and this is the controversy there's a there's a form of evil that is non-pathological hmm. remember i talked about the categorical imperative where you feel there's an ethical duty that you should do re- regardless of how good or bad it is mm-hmm. there is there are evil acts the Marquis de Sade talks about it that are acts that are non-pathological i.e. you don't like this joker in Christopher Nolan's Batman Mm -hmm. who isn't motivated by any selfish desire so he burns the money that's given to him so he does not care right and that's a really interesting type of evil right yeah the interesting thing is where does that come from and how do we address that and people don't even know that exists most people think that the only badness in the world is selfish badness Mm. but there's selfless badness there's badness where someone beats somebody up even though they know they're going to go to prison even though they know they're going to ruin their own life and still they do an act that is destructive
1: yeah, it's funny you bring up Joker, because I was thinking about how most villains think they're the good guy. Like, in the story, most villains, they have a very selfless cause. Oh, I'm doing this to save you. I mean, think about Thanos in Endgame. Like, he was just trying to kill half of the people in the universe yeah. just so there'd be enough resources for everyone. You, you know the one problem with Thanos Or is it Thanos or Thanatos? Th- Thanos, Thanos, yeah.
2: Uh, is that he didn't go far enough right <laughs> you should have killed everyone yeah, exactly here's a, here's a theory Do you want to hear this for a lot yeah, this yeah, is yeah. great um so there's this phil- this philosopher called Ilyenkov. um Ilyenkov was this russian philosopher and he was trying to figure out with a variety of biologists, etc is why what is the purpose of human life mm. why why does the universe create conscious beings mm-hmm. and is there a reason and he created a secular kind of religion and this is what it is you'll love it <laughs> it's basically said that Right? Entropy in the universe, the universe explodes and then it gradually dissipates until its energy is infinitely dispersed. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Now there's a problem there, is that the universe then will come into existence and disappear. Right? Yeah. But they argued that, that this is unlikely to have happened, as in it seems more likely that the universe either contracts and expands and basically infinitely is doing this. Mm -hmm. But how does it do that? Because Mm. To to crunch, to go back into the infinite singularity and then explode again, like that goes against the second law of thermodynamics. Mm. Right? So, they argued that the universe creates intelligence, and eventually, intelligence we become so intelligent that we can create a technology that can reverse the second law of thermodynamics and bring the universe back and do a big crunch so mm. that it can all start again. Hmm. So, we are here to destroy the universe. And I'm making a movie about this. It's good, I shouldn't even say it. Actually. Uh, but uh, is that is that so weirdly, like the universe cre- creates gods yeah. to destroy the universe so that it can start again? Yeah. <laughs> so, that it's us <laughs> just didn't go far enough. That's inter- yeah, that's, great.
0: <laughs> that's we, great. We got a few things to read here. We do this segment called More About Less. Uh, I want to talk about the joy of missing out, but before we get to that, I want to talk about this. Recent Seth Godin uh, blog post that just came out was called Doom Scrolling. You mm. heard of this
2: term, Doom Scrolling? Oh, I could imagine. Is it scrolling bad news? Yeah, it's yeah. just can't, <laughs> being addicted and, and
0: you can't stop scrolling, even yeah. though like, you're just looking for the, the next worst morsel. Yeah. Right. right. So, this is short uh, from Seth Godin. We'll put a link to this in the show notes as well. Being informed is a virtue, it helps us make better decisions and encourages us to take action. Getting hooked on an endless scroll of media inputs is not the same as being informed there's long been a business model of urgent news quote man bites dog but now it's been leveraged amplified and optimized to suck people in for hours at a time and division is much easier than selling progress mm. if it's not helping you take action to make things better what is it for mm-hmm. And this is this really ties into what we were talking about earlier. Like sometimes, you know, yeah, you take away, set aside the the, the psychopathy of, of the the truly evil person. The thing you're talking about earlier with badness, right? I think sometimes we we accidentally stumble into badness, and sometimes it's just we're we're slowly ruining our lives. In in a way, we're we're being meta inconsiderate. We're depriving the world of our virtues, of our gifts, of whatever, because we're we're doom scrolling. We're stuck on on the Twitter feed, and we um, you know maybe maybe the question here is: Are are we watching too much news? Uh, And um, the implication of that question, I guess, is: Are we too aware of what's going on in the world? Because information is good it's also not knowledge and by the way it's only potential power it's not real power we can just we can get all the information i could i could read wikipedia for 9 hours a day it's not going to make my life inherently better yeah mm, yeah
2: i mean this this is a, the perfect definition of death drive cuz death drive if you if you think of the word death just meaning lack and drive being unconscious there's this dimension of us that 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 gets pleasure in lack and so there's there's a part of us, and it's very hard for us to understand, but we enjoy the fantasy of the utter destruction of everything. So when mm-hmm. you're scrolling, even though it's painful, there's something about that that we enjoy. That's yeah. why we do it. There's something in it, yeah. and um, I think it's it's death drive. I think there's and until we can kind of create a healthy way of kind of like integrating death drive into our lives,
3: mm-hmm.
2: what we do is we split, we almost become split subjects. Mm. We live our everyday life here and then we, you know, get obsessed with the destruction of the world here. Yeah. And we haven't integrated these two aspects of our being. So yeah, doom scrolling, I think is a good example of this weird drive we have to, to death, to lack, to nothing.
1: But it's unhealthy. It's an unhealthy way of it. When I was uh, <clears throat> like a practicing Jehovah's Witness, uh, I would doom scroll. I mean, we didn't. I didn't really have a smartphone when I was a Jehovah's Witness, but it was like going through the news channels because Jehovah's Witnesses are end timers. They are. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, they instill the fear into you about Armageddon and what happens, you know, leading up to Armageddon. Yada, yada, yada. So all of this bad news, it was like these little bits of confirmation of all of the bad things that Jehovah's Witnesses were telling me were, were going to happen, and it was also this. You know this bit of relief of like, oh look, the end of the world is almost here, mm. and Jesus is going to come back and fix everything. So I think I think that has a little bit to do with the doom scrolling. I think another thing too is human beings love we love problems, we love solving problems.
0: Yeah, and or we love your, just problems too. We love the chaos. Yes, in a way.
1: yeah, like yeah. Some people are are addicted to the drama. They're addicted yeah. to the chaos. Um, other people too, they love to see a problem and then fantasize about how we're going to solve it you know and and I, yeah there's just a lot of different factors i think why people doom scroll right well, i think that that the
0: doom scrolling is just a more erudite way of like it, you do that instead of watching World Star. People getting beat up like right. on, on videos or e-bombs <laughs> world or whatever it mm-hmm. was. Like you you see these people doing crazy things, and that is the sort of lowbrow. But the highbrow version of that is I'm going to check the New York Times mm-hmm. and New York Magazine. I'm going to read this bad article about insert political figure here. And, yeah. and we, what we're doing is we're we're giving so much more light to things. That don't Even something, and this might be a controversial statement, even something as important as the coronavirus, it is getting appreciably more play than its counterparts. And What I mean by that is, so let's compare it to, I know it's not the flu, but let's compare it to something like the flu mm-hmm. and the coronavirus, let's say it's 10 times worse than the flu. By all indications, it's not 10 times worse than the flu in terms of death, but let's say it's 10 times worse. Mm-hmm. Well, then you would think the news would cover it 10 times as much as the flu. Right. It's not, I, I, we, yeah. we, no, it's being covered thousands of times more than the flu. Yeah. It's, we, we've never covered the flu like this before, even though it kills 50 60,000 people uh, on, mm. on bad years. Yeah. But we don't cover it the same way. Well, why, why do we do that? Because the news is about aggregating eyeballs. Well, how do you do that? It's exactly what Seth Godin was saying here. It's not dog bites man. It's man bites dog. Yeah. Right. It, and,
2: appeals to, it appeals to that
0: death drive dimension to us. So that's why until we're able to get healthier...
2: The the news will keep giving us this because yeah. they want they want the clicks they want the eyeballs unless we can create healthier communities where we actually don't click on those we don't care and yeah. that, that's that's what my work is about is how do we become healthy enough that that we, that that death drive doesn't keep obsessing us you know um, because yeah, yeah the, I've just seen this with COVID is is a perfect example of the amount of anxiety um, that. That's being created and exacerbated. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, funnily enough, religion, like you, Jehovah's Witness, mm-hmm. like religion, has been very good at helping manage people's anxiety about death because mm-hmm. it tells you you're going to live forever. Right. right. It, mm-hmm. it also is very quite good at mitigating the anxiety of guilt because mm-hmm. within Protestantism, especially, but Catholicism as well, with confessionals, there's a way of you know you get rid of your guilt through confession or whatever. Right what religion's not been so good at is what Tillich calls the 20th and 21st will be now 21st century problem which is meaninglessness because mm. once really? you really, you know, I, I,
0: see, I see it as that being the, one of the main problems that it solves but I'm looking at it through uh, the this is the contemporaneity thing that we were talking oh, about earlier yeah. right I look at it from uh, a modern perspective and I think one of the reasons that we suffer so much with meaninglessness now is we have we have replayed now Ryan and I have different beliefs on, on, on religion mm-hmm. and on I know they're different from from yours. You, you know, you're you're fascinating because you're a theologian, and and and. But I can't like pigeonhole you into <laughs> a. Um, but it's weird because I, there are all these things I want to talk about right now. So I don't know which rabbit hole to
1: well, fall down. Let me make sure I understand well, what what both of you are saying. So you're saying that religion is a cure for meaninglessness because it helps you find meaning. And what you're saying is is that religion. The problem is is it doesn't help you be okay with the meaning meaninglessness. Yeah. It's is that right? Yeah, it's almost like, so for Paul Tillich, he says, right, if you are scared of death Mm -hmm. and
2: I come along with a religion that says you're going to live forever and you go, oh, that's brilliant, right? And and it mitigates it. if you feel guilty and I have a structure that allows you to kind of temporarily get rid of that guilt through scapegoat mechanisms or whatever, Mm -hmm. then that's, and by the way, neither good nor bad when I say this, Mm -hmm. just that it helps you. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: For Tillich, the reason why meaninglessness is so difficult is because if I come along with a religion that says, "Oh, you feel that everything's meaningless," well, my religion will give you meaning. Mm-hmm. If you really experience the world is meaningless, then you'll go like, "No, your your religion's meaningless, mm-hmm. right?" And so it doesn't cure the meaninglessness because meaninglessness kind of usurps everything;
0: and undermines everything.
2: No. So that's what, yeah.
0: So, so maybe the meaninglessness mm-hmm. that we experience right now is more of a listlessness, like like uh, we we are. Uh, we don't we 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 feel that there's a meaning out there. We just haven't found it yet. And, and I think that that's where it often solves the problem for a lot of people are like, I, "I need to find a meaning in my life, and often people they they latch onto a lot of things as shortcuts to, toward a meaning. Mm-hmm. um and so what we're talking about isn't finding meaning for nihilists. It's about people who aren't nihilists than finding out the thing, that, ge- that, that gives, seeking out the thing that gives some, mm. some sort of meaning to their life. Well, actually, in a way, I'm, I'm, more, I'm more for the nihilist here <clears throat> because um,
2: what I would say is that you have to go as deep into meaninglessness as you can. Like, like you have to go so far into it that everything falls apart mm. and then something happens. What happens is you find that the meaninglessness is meaningful. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is if you doubt everything, if you say there's no truth, everything is relative. Eventually you go, sorry, everything is relative. You eventually go, oh, there's one thing that's not relative, is that is the claim that everything is relative. Mm. So there is a type of truth in my claim that everything is skeptical. So in your profound skepticism, you suddenly find a rock that you can stand on. Mm. So so my argument is that when you truly feel the, the rupture of all meaning, you can find meaning in that. And the problem is sometimes we haven't gone that far. Mm. We haven't gone all the way into the dark night of the soul. So I'm like, I'm almost like, I wanna push people right into the heart of darkness mm. because that's where you're gonna find the light.
1: Does that make sense? It does. it does. Well, to me, like it makes me think of how uh, the meaninglessness that I have discovered has given meaning to my life because it helps me appreciate just even having this conversation and being able to like have an audience that listens to this conversation rather than thinking about what does this conversation serve? What's the end game? It's the privilege of just being able to have an opportunity to have a conversation that goes out to an audience. So, uh, there is no end game. Um, but that's because I feel like there is no end game because that's, where I have gotten with the meaninglessness. It's just life is life Life life. and we get to live it. And what what a privilege it is to be able to have a cup of coffee in the morning or to to be able to taste delicious cake. I mean, (laughs) just those things have so much more meaning to me now than before with religion. It was always like, you know, what does this action serve? What is the end game with this action? Uh, And not having an end game, actually there's a lot of solace in that. There's a lot of peace in that.
0: I think uh, when I look at what you're saying there, it's, before there was a, an inherent meaning si- assigned to things or yeah. to life in general, right. and what you're saying now is nothing is inherently meaningful, and thus, if we, uh, as Peter said, we basically explode that, right? We 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 then, if we blow up the, this idea that there's an inherent meaning in the world, mm-hmm. then we can then find meaning in- Everything. Whatever we want to find meaning yeah, in. Yeah, pretty much everything. We, we can decide to assign meaning as well. Yeah, yeah.
2: in a a way and I don't even know if I fully fully agree with what I'm going to say here but I (laughs) kind of vaguely do is if say you're an artist and you're trying to paint something beautiful Mm -hmm. right every time you paint something beautiful you're going to feel like you missed it Mm -hmm. but you're animated by the desire To create something beautiful but you that you always miss that you're never able to create if you ever think you've created the beautiful thing Mm -hmm. you should tear it up that's what it means when if you you know the buddha if you find the buddha on the road kill him right Mm -hmm. because the idea is if you meet the buddha there in a concrete physical person it's not the buddha right the buddha is always to come Mm -hmm. so the artist who is trying to paint something beautiful and always feels and never gets it They're motivated by this transcendental notion of beauty that they can never get. Mm -hmm. So they are on the rock of beauty, but they can never nail it. Or the lawyer who is always trying to put things into, who's always trying to articulate justice. Mm -hmm. But they never quite do because the law is never completely just, but they're motivated by justice, but they never are able to pin it down. Mm -hmm. Or the philosopher who is always trying to argue about what logic is, they can never fully pin it down, but they have to assume logic in order to make the argument. So it's you don't build towards mm. logic, it's what you build from, you stand on it. So the argument here is, strangely, in one's doubt as to whether life is meaningful, you find the fact that you're still doing this, you're doing the minimalist, you're, you've, you've got a vocation, that it's like you're standing on something that you can never name, and that's the transcendental. That's what Tillich got. The transcendental, which is the the thing that you're motivated by. He calls it ultimate concern. It's your ultimate concern, mm. but you can never pin it down. You don't know if it exists. Mm. You don't know if it's there. You don't. But it's kind of it's 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 always is motivating you. And for Tillich, only when you go into the darkness will you find that rock.
0: Mm. Let's, let's pivot real quick to the joy of missing out. We've talked a bit about the fear of missing out already, and I'm sure we'll be talking more about that. We've talked about freedom and
1: anxiety. Are we moving on the Jomo before your Verve story? Yes, All right. we are.
0: So we have this excerpt from our next book called Love People Use Things, and uh, we were talking about productivity. We we're talking about doom scrolling uh, a moment ago. And so there's this uh, a quick paragraph I wanted to excerpt and, and discuss. Productivity expert Tanya Dalton calls this removal of the superfluous the joy of missing out. So there's a section in the book where I talk about starting to remove some things that no longer serve us. So back to what Seth was talking about. In her book of the same name, she writes, doing less might seem counterintuitive, but doing less is more productive because you're concentrating on the work you actually want to be doing. For me, this is the most compelling argument for digital minimalism. When we stop conflating distraction and busy work with productivity and efficiency, we're able to accomplish something profound and meaningful with our creativity. And so, right now, I think one of the reasons we distract ourselves so much, whether it's the doom scrolling, or it is it, name your pacifier, right, television, or even, it could even be reading, it could be doing something that apes the form of productivity, things we, we think of, but, but they're often things that distract us from doing the more, what, we, what I would call more meaningful work, or, or, or just the more challenging things, because we, we often gravitate toward the easier thing, right? Hmm. So let's, let's talk a bit about the, this, this concept of the joy of missing out because uh, this is what what Tanya Dalton talks about when when with respect to, to productivity. But I feel like we can apply this to other areas of our life. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um,
2: and a distinction that I think is really interesting is joy. It that's a theological term, actually. Interestingly, <laughs> um, um, now I, I want to distinguish it between happiness. So go like happiness is the pleasure of getting what you want. So mm. happiness is the level of you have that holiday and it's lovely and you so happiness is connected to opening the birthday present at mm-hmm. Christmas or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's or the Christmas and fleeting. Yeah, exactly. But it's you know, it has its moments, but it's ephemeral.
3: Yeah.
2: And then joy and It's not bad. It's not bad. Oh yeah, it has to mean God, you have to have those moments in life or it'd be mm. terrible, you know? yeah. Um but joy, I would say, is the pleasure of not having. So joy of missing out is a very clever term because technically joy is the pleasure that you get from not having what you want. Mm. So C.S. Lewis, funnily enough, who's um, you know, I've got my love and hate with C.S. Lewis, but in his book, Surprised by Joy, he defines joy as the aroma of a heaven that you're not in. So you mm-hmm. already see that there's an aroma, he gets an aroma of this something that mm-hmm. he doesn't have, but it's not painful, it's pleasurable. It's hmm. like, oh. That, and that's actually very close to the psychoanalytic notion of joy is, hmm. you know, like imagine a couple and they're about to part forever and the man's getting on a train and the woman's at the train station and they're parting and it's very painful and it's very sorrowful. But, you know, if a movie ends like that, there's also this sense of, of a... Of, of this power and this depth and this in the suffering there's also this like you'll always be with me there's Mm. like an element of joy in that Mm. so the joy of missing out for me is when we can take the fear of missing out and the anxiety of our freedom and the lack and the like what should i do what should i buy how can i be complete right all of that stuff and you go oh actually i can enjoy that not being who i think i should be not having what I think I should have, uh, not, not, not being in the place in my life that I would like to be. Mm. Somehow that's no longer oppressive. That's okay.
1: Yeah. So it's the joy of not being oppressed by your desires, yes. essentially. Mm. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because the way <clears throat> that uh, you described the joy missing out, I kind of took it as, you know, another way uh, you can basically find joy in the action you're taking mm-hmm. that you are essentially taking and leaving everything else outside of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. M- maybe if we were to apply this to stuff, right? If we, mm-hmm. if because the, the physical objects, we're able to see them. They're the tangible manifestation of this. It, how much stuff do you need in your home? Like if I, if I were to just take a, uh, a dump truck th- full of ikea parts and dump it into your living room Mm -hmm. all of a sudden you're gonna have way too many things there but the the joy would be from then removing the inappropriate objects from from the room Mm -hmm. and and then embracing the fact that like i have fewer things here now but i but i actually enjoy that i'm truly missing out on all of those things but but it's because I don't have all of those things in here mm-hmm. that I'm getting the satisfaction from the space. Yeah.
2: So it's, it's, it's a weird turnaround because you could feel anxious about that if you're sitting and Emma earlier. It's like maybe, you know, at, at its worst, she's going like, oh, I want to have a different house. I don't want to have a different thing. And that can be oppressive. Or you just change your your attitude towards it and you're going, oh, it's kind of nice that I, you know, I, I can enjoy that. That I don't have what I want. And I can, you know, she can, you know, change the house and do all of that. But mm-hmm. there's a sense in which it's no longer oppressive. Mm-hmm. What you don't have is no longer oppressive. It's mm-hmm. actually quite, you know, in, it's enjoyable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. Would
0: you say, I mean, maybe even freeing in a way?
2: Oh, 100%. Yeah. Absolutely. And and that's what I meant by not getting rid of your anxiety, but just changing your posture towards it. Yeah, That's, mm-hmm. that's what it is. It's kind of the en- enjoyment of that kind of like that lack. Yeah. oh by the way it's like re- writing a book the the happiness is in it being printed and the joy is in writing it yeah so when you're writing it you don't have it because <clears throat> it's not done but you're enjoying the process of not having it and then the happiness is the printing and we all know that the happiness is that's fleeting like,
0: yeah and by you know, the way right. it then becomes like i look at whenever i look at something i've published it's hard to go back and look at because mm-hmm. you're like man i really should have used a semicolon there instead of an m dash and like it it becomes Oppressive in a different way. Yeah. Once it becomes yeah. complete the complete thing is then the oppressor Yes, and, Ooh,
2: I've got a thing that you'd like as because as the person who likes to complete things like myself Yes, I did this thing recently and I'm i I'm, was f- fascinating thinking about it. I got obsessed with this terrible shoe I mentioned person of interest right <laughs> brilliant. I loved it. I watched all I think there's like six seasons Yeah, 22 th- episodes per season oh my God. and I just watched the whole thing. Yeah until two episodes before the end and then I just stopped
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> and, and I think uh, deep down I'm enjoying not completing it no, oh, I think yeah. I think there's a fantasy of like because I know it's going to be a let right after doing all of that work uh-huh. you know if I finish those two episodes yeah. so I'm enjoying uh, wow. not completing it yeah. now eventually I will you know and I've thought <gasps> but it's been like two months and yeah. I literally in one I think I did it all in two weeks I like so many episodes wow. and I didn't even think about it I was just like That's so weird. Two episodes before Mm. the end, I just stopped. stopped. That's
1: (laughs) enjoyment. (laughs) That's interesting. This is like the tantric sex
0: of binge watching. Right? (laughs) That's hilarious. I
1: I will say it's one of of the few uh, shows, though, that actually I'm okay with how it ended. (laughs) Like, it was was pretty decent. But I'll tell you what, I'm I'm right there with you, though. Like, House of Cards, I was watching, I forget what season it was. It was right before we were going on tour. Uh And I'm like, it came out, like, on a Saturday it came out uh, Josh and I were leaving on a Sunday. So Mariah and I were like, we're just going to sit here and binge the whole house of cards. And we, we were fulfilling that desire of having to watch the season. Um, but as soon as this, it, it was over it was 10 episodes, 10 hours later, we were like, just our brains were mush. It didn't feel good at all. Yeah. And it there was, was funny. like there. Yeah. Once we completed what we sought to complete. Yeah. We felt um completely brain dead (laughs) there was no sense of joy after watching that for 10 hours straight
0: sometimes the the opposite though so you sent me this picture of this coffee that you you tried at verve oh yeah and it was this honduras natural were they out of it uh so i i go i drive there like ryan tells me this is the best cup of coffee he's had in a year (laughs) and so i'm like great i'll go there it was it was good yeah and so i go there and they don't have anymore oh and and so uh i instantly feel the 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 it's the fear of missing oh, out dude, the, i'm sorry i did that it's to like you the know. agony of missing out in a way because it's like hey you've got to try this thing and then i can't try it i would have been totally fine if you wouldn't have told me about this <laughs> thing but now it's like oh now i can't even try it and i and i could not you so i get a different coffee from them but i i I still feel like I've missed out on the thing that he told me is <laughs> the best thing ever, and well, and, yeah. and and then the the funny thing is like I go I go beans. several days later and they actually have it back in stock, so mm-hmm. I I get it mm-hmm. and it's very good. Like it was it was this Honduras natural processed uh, coffee, which we
1: and, don't even really like natural coffee. I, I, like, I do I re- oh, I'm a big fan like of the natural process. Yeah.
0: yeah, um, and so I I really I, I enjoyed it I, a lot, mm-hmm. but not i didn't enjoy it nearly as much as yeah. the pain that i felt in between where yeah. it's like oh i missed out yeah yeah that, th-
2: this connection's vital like so we think
0: we think that we we
2: sacrifice for what we love thought that the secret which is a terrible thing to say but we often love because we sacrifice mm-hmm. so for example football is a bit rubbish right mm-hmm. i if, if soccer as you call it here so you know, it's just two people, it's a pile of people kicking a ball back and forth. Right. So yeah. what makes it valuable? Well, it's the amount of sacrifice that people give to it. So you mm-hmm. sacrifice your time, you watch the sport, your father brought you to the mm-hmm. game, whatever it is. So you sacrifice so much. And because of all the sacrifice, it makes it so valuable. So Liverpool won something big last week. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. And everybody who supported Liverpool went crazy because mm-hmm. the first time they'd won it for 20 years or whatever. Yeah. And um, what was hilarious was it going like, like, it's because you've sacrificed so much that this becomes massive. Mm. And that's why, you know, people think, oh, I'm jealous because I love. But sometimes people love because they're jealous. Mm. They need, mm. you, the more you sacrifice, oh. the more you create the opposite. So the more sacrifice is involved, the more the thing becomes greater and greater and greater. And um, so it, it, it it's the difference. It's different from the conscious logic. It's uh, the unconscious logic, so that's happening with the coffee. You yeah. can't have it, and so the sacrifice, the the inability to have it, mm-hmm. kind of makes it bigger and better. Oh. And and yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if you were, and if you had that coffee for fifty two weeks in a row, I don't know which week you would be like, yeah, but I'm done I'm with this. I'm a bit psychopathic with this. Yeah, like, it, yeah, I maybe. eat the same meal twice a day every day. Well, what? If, okay, so what if? All right. So when you and said football, just as when you, much. When every you said day. Foo- when you said football, I think of American football. Oh, yeah. And I think about the the Patriots and how that first Super Bowl they won back in like 2004 or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were the underdogs. Like Belichick came in and just like turned that team around and they won that Super Bowl. And I remember not even being a Patriots fan up to that point. It was just the story of how they got there, and they finally won. And it was like you're, everyone's rooting for them, and they got it. And you the, see this, yourself
0: in that. You see the underdog. Yeah,
1: the story of Tom Brady and uh, taking over from Drupal. Ble- I mean, there's just some great stories with that team that year. But then, like, the second time they won it, I'm like, okay, cool. But, like, by the sixth time they won it, I'm like, all oh, right, enough already. Yeah. So with you, who the ocd if the Utah Jazz won – Every the championship, every single year, uh-huh. I would love it. You would love it, yeah. You man. would never
0: get sick of it. No, I don't think so. Interesting, but everyone, imagine how everyone already hates them. Imagine how much everyone would really hate them if they actually won championships, right? <laughs> Why is that? Why do we, 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 because I agree with what Ryan's saying there. We, we, we see these dynasties, it doesn't have to be just sports, it could be anywhere else. Where at first, we see ourselves in that person and we see ourselves in their sacrifice as well. You see someone like LeBron James, who I who I could never be like because I don't have the biology to be LeBron James. But if he if he not only does he have the biology, but he has the willingness to, to sacrifice his his body, his time, his attention uh, to be the the best ever. Yeah. And, and but over time when you see someone win 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 win, you you stop identifying with that yeah. in a way, mm. right? Yeah, you
2: kind of mm. identify with the loss. By the way, I did I just remembered I did an experiment when I was in my 20s and I lived in this kind of squat in Belfast and I remember we were all hanging around and for a joke we just got into a sport. I can't even remember what it's called. What's that one called where it's all ice and you shuffle? <laughs> oh, curling. Curling. curling yeah, yeah, yeah. So we got into curling and it was just a joke. So we sacrificed time to watch these curling and it's terrifying. Because... You start to get into it. You start to get into it. Yeah. And then about a month later, we're like, oh my, we're all into the teams and we're going to kill each other over which (laughs) teams, right? And it shows like, all what happened was curling looks ridiculous, but we just sacrificed and the sacrificing then generated it more. and then And then it kind of, it kind of, that it happened. So kind of at a contingent level, whatever your mum or dad bring you to as a sport, for example, that you see them sacrifice to whatever... Could can become this incredibly important thing. Yeah. That, by the way, is where I think um, the categorical imperative comes from. Is like, that we we so sacrifice that we end up loving things in this extreme way, which is beautiful. You know, mm. we kind of like, but lack and uh, lack and the things we value most are then intimately interconnected, mm-hmm. intimately interconnected. And this brings us back to why lack is that the the not at oneness of the one. I keep coming back to this, this is why I'm not a new age guy, is because they're all about the one. It's like there is a lack and it's the lack that generates our desire and love yeah, and yeah. sacrifice and all of that. Mm-hmm. And they're intimately interconnected.
0: Yeah. 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 Let's talk about sacrifice some more. I've got this it's a, a shouts and murmurs from the New Yorker. And so it's a little comedic article. I'm not going to read the whole thing. Ryan and I had a mask discussion on last week's podcast that I asked Sean to remove. Yeah, why I did th- you remove that? It only got us about 60% of the way there. And I felt we could have a better conversation with Peter here. Okay. And and so now that he is here, um, I want to have a conversation about this
1: because... So I can rehash everything I talked about. Like, just Yeah. nothing I said that was like going to yeah, get for canceled sure. or anything. Okay.
0: No, 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 no. I mean, I, I felt like we just didn't... It was... Well, obviously incomplete, but it it felt like it was um, like we set something on the table, but then just didn't do anything with it. Okay. And so here is a a jump off point for us. This is called Lexicon for a Pandemic by Jay Martell. And these are just different um, vocab words to use during the pandemic. The first one is mask hole. An individual who wears a mask in a way that makes it completely ineffective. Mask hole. E.g., below the nose under the chin on the back of the head
1: or just cuts out the center of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's actually the drawing here
0: yes <laughs> so um we're gonna talk about masks in a moment uh but let me let me keep going here i got a few few more here face naked the state of facial exposure that occurs when an individual declines to wear a mask in public for example pence went all face naked to the mayo clinic body mullet when most people, what most people wear on Zoom calls, a nice top and below the waist, underwear or less. <laughs> Business up top, party down below. <laughs> All right, it goes on. I will put a link to this in the show notes. Uh, some pretty fu- funny uh, uh, funny lexicon for a pandemic. But uh, here, here's the thing, what I want to talk about. We talked about this seriously last week, but we've brought Peter in to, to maybe he, he can help us iron it out a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I am critical of people who not just refuse to wear masks, but who outrage against people who are not in positions of power. And that's what I felt like I didn't I, I didn't really Expound communicate. A bit. I didn't communicate this well last week, but you know, there's the guy who says, I feel threatened. And he's like, yelling at this poor lady yes. at Costco who's saying, sir, I'm sorry, but our store policy is you have to wear a mask. Get out of my face. I feel threatened. Yeah. And it's like, you're being a... A mask hole, right? Mm. You're just being a total jerk, and so that's my my real problem. Like I understand that there are some people who don't want to wear masks; they feel like they're ineffective or whatever. But maybe, just maybe, there is this period of time right now where the 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 shared solidarity, the sacrifice, is worth this this shared solidarity because people are Mm. are terrified, and there is certainly evidence that masks help prevent the spread of SARS-CoV-2 mm-hmm. and and because of that it doesn't mean that fewer people are going to end up getting it in the long run but maybe we can keep the hospitals from being um, overcrowded yeah. and so the problem that I have with with this whole discussion isn't the fact that I want you to have fewer freedoms and maybe we can unpack that a little bit but
1: I have a problem with Calm with <laughs> uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, which the new yorker has called us uh, uh, or com- compared us to um,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and so um yeah they, they call us like cap- capitalist communists yeah or something. something like that um and, yeah right and, and right there you go um and, and so the 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 problem that i have is the the knee-jerk reactions and the pendulum seeming to need to swing all the way from uh you either have to wear a full hazmat suit, uh, even in your house, or you are an evil capitalist who votes only for people with red hats. Or the other side is you have to go into public completely naked mm-hmm. and call fun people. You're mandated by the government. And then everything else in between is like uh, th- there's no room for that. Mm. And why do we have such a problem? I wrote this down in the notes. But like I, I, this to me is almost this argument of Democrat versus Republican. I don't know why it's become how come if i go out and see someone not wearing a mask i can identify who they're voting for like what a strange thing yeah and why why is it a Dem- democrat versus republican and, and it seems to me that atheists versus theists mm. is also that same thing it is it is uh, this binary yes or no it is uh, there's no room for the nuance and it's why i appreciate what what Pete does is because he, not only does he inject nuance, he injects some needed confusion into the uh, <laughs> yeah. into the whole thing.
2: That's my job. My job is to confuse, baffle, and befuzzle. It's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like a magician without the tricks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's, that's what i would love to do actually be a magician does not there's a few magicians that are like that there's yeah. one famous one in the uk and he was very
1: famous for all his tricks for rubbish but yeah. that was his thing that was his, that's great that was like, i no, saw I a comedian once where he said he he uh couldn't do any magic tricks but he had really good magic hands and he was like doing these gestures <laughs> <laughs> that's and, and, and so yeah. we're
0: arguing about these things <clears throat> yeah. that are almost inconsequential where, where we don't even we don't get to the the heart of the matter. Mm. Even I, I noticed with religion. We'll get back to masks, hopefully, but with religion, I I, I see people who are arguing uh, about, you know, that you, you'll you'll have a, a Southern Baptist arguing with a Mormon about you know doctrine or whatever, and it seems to be missing often is missing the point altogether. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is the difference between communication and
2: language. By the way, is that Oh, so. Oh, oh yeah, because uh, communication, which is what animals do and computers do, communication is the the giving of information, so the passing of information. So a basic form of communication is a bird call, for example. And every time the birds hear this call, they know that you have to run or mm-hmm. you're ma- it's mating season or whatever. Language is a funny thing because language is communication and miscommunication. Mm. So as soon as you start to speak, language is overdetermined or overcoded with other meanings. And so something like a mask becomes, as you say, not just about communicating what is effective and as, as a means of dealing with this pandemic, but it becomes overcoded with political, yeah. religious, or cultural messages. And the truth is, You can't, language is, you can't clear out completely the miscommunication. So there'll Mm -hmm. always be a messiness to language, an overcoding of language. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're dealing with here. So what is, a scientific scientific journal is the closest that we can get to communication, right? It's the closest we can get. Um, But once it gets into the world... It all means different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Wearing a mask in a certain context or not wearing a mask in a certain context communicates more than what I think about COVID. It communicates who I'm going to vote for or what my ideology is. And, and that's the problem is how, how do we that's what confuse that a little bit or mm-hmm. or have more have an understanding that of, of basically what's being said beneath what's being said. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like whenever someone says, I want you to leave they're not saying i want you to leave they're often saying i want you to fight to stay yeah mm, they can't yeah. say that right so if we can begin to work out what is the what are the, what are the codes that are in uh in these different and kind of bring them to the surface maybe we can be a bit more forgiving with each other and find a better way to relate to each other well i'd like and to i'd like to, to find
0: a way to sometimes remove some of these codes because sometimes it if i were to reappropriate sigmund freud here sometimes a mask is just a mask yes, exactly. right <laughs> yes, and, yes and it doesn't have to just because I, I wear a mask but it's become like the bloods and the crypts right like right. if if you if i were to go to a neighborhood and not wear a mask but it'd be like wearing blue in a all red neighborhood right i'm going to get you i'm going going to get killed metaphorically Mm -hmm. um and 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 the opposite is also true you go to a neighborhood where people shun mask wearing you go there wearing a mask Mm -hmm. it's like you're asking for trouble in a way where where really it's i'm trying to protect others or i'm trying to protect myself depending on uh, on your point of view the real problem i have with people refuse to to wear a mask during a time like this is uh well i have two problems one is there it seems to be a like a person who's opposed to solidarity in a way when when they're doing it verbally it's not that they're just refusing yeah. to wear a mask i'm not a sheep
1: yeah i ain't one of those sheeple
0: right yeah right
1: and and so the, it's funny because they actually are a sheep they're just
0: it's a different different sheep. yeah right? exactly yeah, yeah. it's yeah. a different pasture right and and <laughs> And so the real problem I have, though, is is people who cause trouble for other people who are, are trying to help. On the different paths. It's almost oh, like they're, yeah. they're getting in the way of helping.
3: Yeah. See,
2: and here's, here's the biggest shame, we, we're all guilty of that, I'm guilty of this, is that if I just wear a mask, that's one thing, but if I wear a mask and I say to you, I'm wearing a mask because I'm right and this is part of my politics and mm-hmm. whatever, and you disagree with something of mine, you're more likely to then go, well, I'm not going to wear a mask because of. Yes. So it's like it's unfortunately when if I do an action and then I kind of like do the action, not just because I think it's a good thing to do, but somehow I claim it as being because I'm better than you or my, cause, because of my political opinion. Mm-hmm. You'll find yourself it's like two people arguing with you're arguing with your partner and they say one thing. But there's a bit of tension between you. So you start arguing the other side, partly for Mm. devil's advocate. You say, Well, I don't think and then five minutes later you're arguing like you're two world experts. Mm. And you're you're like this, you're like this. And and then it takes one person to go, you know, actually, you know, I don't really know what I'm talking about. Then the other person is more likely to go, yeah, neither die. Or and maybe I don't
0: care what I'm talking about. Sometimes yeah. we start arguing about things we don't actually care about. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. And, and for whatever reason, we, we just want, we feel like we need to be the contrarian. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the other problem I have here is, yeah, we're assigning all of these meanings to, mm-hmm. to a mask where it does seem that wearing a mask, in, especially indoors, it's, mm-hmm. it's inconclusive as to whether or not it helps much outdoors, but indoors specifically, it seems like it does help the spread. If you are at a restaurant or a busy, a busy place, then it does seem to me like that makes the most sense and it's the most responsible. However, I can also... I can I, I can sympathize with someone who's like I I don't want you know the government to, to force me to do this. I mean, what I would argue, especially with these guys who are going into Costco
1: and I yell, feel threatened, right? It's no, like what he what he's saying is is I don't have control of my life, right? I feel like I'm out of control, yeah. But he's not complaining about the fact
0: that they're making him wear pants, no, and and that no. that you know my the. The, the thesis I have is like all these guys who were at Costco yelling at, at like the employees there, they all have small penises because they don't get <laughs> mad when they are asked to wear pants. Right. But they get really upset when they're asked to wear a mask.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it, I, I, to me, it goes back to that freedom thing where people who get angry about having to wear a mask, they feel like they have so little control over their lives that this is just one more thing that they don't have control over. Because I haven't seen anyone like for me, I I'm okay to wear a mask because it yeah I'll stand in solidarity. I have so much you know freedom in my life like wearing a mask, even though it's uncomfortable as hell. It like makes my you know makes my uh my my face itch. Um, Josh, you said you were breaking out from, from yeah, my mask. mask
0: makes me break out like, yeah, like crazy.
1: Yeah, but it's not enough for me to to like all of a sudden stand up and ignore all the science that comes with wearing a mask. Um, but I do want to talk about like how we got to this point though with the mask. Mm. Um, so we started off this whole pandemic with the media saying, don't wear masks, including Fauci. Yeah. Masks don't do anything. Yeah. There's no reason to wear a mask. Right. Then, uh, now that we have a surplus of masks, now the, the narrative is, is okay. Well actually masks do do something. So because of that communication breakdown, that, uh, or that language breakdown, I guess. Like, th- there's this, there's this skepticism with, like, does it actually do something? Because we were, we
0: were lied to before, so are we being lied to now? Right. Exactly.
1: Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead.
0: Yeah. No, I think
1: you've got a point there. My, my
2: hunch, and see what you think about this. But my hunch is that. That this has been actually really just overcoded with politics, mm. and that weirdly yes. it could have been it, it's so contingent, it could have been the opposite. and it actually it could become the opposite. Like I think that if, for example, liberals uh, became more, Uh, skeptical of wearing masks for a variety of reasons going out maybe and protesting injustice or whatever and they're going like you know so they they start to change their thing about social distancing Mm -hmm. my guess is uh more uh conservatives will then do the opposite like there's a there's an oppositional dimension to what's going on it's very extreme at the moment so my kind of guess is that I genuinely believe that this could swap over and mm-hmm. and it's really almost like whatever you're doing I want to do
0: the opposite. Right. If you say Th- breathing is, what... is good, I'm going to say breathing's bad. Yeah. <laughs> you know. This is, yeah, the, right. this is how you differentiate <laughs> tribes versus what I call community, right? So a tribe yeah. unites against something, a community unites around something. Yes. Mm-hmm. And and so right now what you're talking about is uh, well we're going to we're going to unite against whatever the other per- person. So we're we're forming these tribes. The problem with with the the tribe mentality or the, the, the having these these teams is it excludes actually most of us who require some nuance here. Mm-hmm. Where Ryan and I are looking at this and just saying, "Hey, does it make sense to wear a mask?" I don't care who you're voting for, right? And if you're wearing a mask, oh wait, but you're voting for someone different? I, here's the weird thing about it. like I've never understood it. Ryan and I voted for two different people in the last election and that baffles people. It, how do you guys not hate each other? I could care less who he voted for. Yeah. Like, How does that affect me at all? You yeah. already hate each other. Since right, exactly. For, so, for someone different, didn't do anything
1: exactly. else? <laughs> you, you know the thing that bugs me the most about the whole mask thing is that I think the way we got to it being so conflicting is because when i see people going to these town hall meetings and they're going off on i can't believe you're making this a mandate it's all about the science Mm. behind how unhealthy it is to wear a mask and what they did is they saw a meme on facebook Mm. that said oh a face mask you breathe in your own carbon dioxide you're not allowing your respiratory your god-given respiratory system to do its job you're affecting it by wearing a mask it's hooey like think about surgeons who have to go in and wear a mask for you know 15 20 hours on a regular basis they do not have a less a lesser quality of life than someone who never has to wear a mask that's yeah. why
2: i think it's oppositional that's why i think because i think deep down we know that on all sides mm-hmm. like there are these silly things that go around and this is where I deep down i think that like if for example some prominent conservatives Kind of like suddenly started really enjoying mass, going out and being like, then maybe they'd galvanize your Grip And as I say, then you'd find some liberals mm-hmm. going, Oh, I I, you know, yeah. I, I I, kind of wonder whether it's like creationists. I used to be briefly like a creationist when I was 16 years old, 17 years old, mm-hmm. where I believed Earth was made in six days, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. Yeah. And I did 6,000 years ago. Six, yeah. Right. But I didn't. a funny thing is, I, I argued for it. And I argued for it against people who knew a lot more about um, geography and all of that. Mm -hmm. But then I met somebody who I respected, who just said, okay, I don't think it's that important. And then Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, thank goodness, because it's all rubbish. Mm -hmm. In other words, I knew deep down it was all Mm -hmm. rubbish, but I didn't think I was allowed to say that because I thought I was letting my team down. And as soon as I found someone I respected in my team, in my tribe, who said, I don't think it's that important. Yes. that was more devastating than someone with a biology phd mm. telling me exactly why i was wrong so i think some of
1: these things are people
2: are like they'll fight they'll fight they'll fight mm-hmm. but i think it's tribal
1: oh absolutely no you've got a great point because when i think about like the president who he really won't say he, he floats around it like he has said things like oh i like the mask it makes me look like zorro yeah. you know like he'll say something or the the lone ranger is what he said uh-huh. you know um However, he won't come out and say, hey, we need to wear a mask because it's going to help flatten this curve. But it's interesting because he's reacting to the tribe. Mm -hmm. Like he is looking Uh at his tribe and he's saying, what is my tribe? What do they believe? So he's not going to go against the people that are going to vote for him. So he hasn't come out and said, hey, look, we need to wear masks. Um, But it's interesting, though, because it's – I don't know where – well, I mean, yeah, I guess I don't know where it starts because you're talking about people looking up to their leader – and, and that tribe following that leader but you have got the leader looking at the tribe yes, yes. being yeah, but, the but leader that, being not, led by the tribe that
0: always happens though right mm-hmm. to, to some extent sure um, the because if they're if they're not in sync eventually one will leave the other and, and yeah uh, yes yeah, so
1: so so, so, I, so so you're saying that there's like commu- there's communication or language back and forth like it's it's coming from both sides yeah I I don't
0: know that it's that direct but it it is it's it's looking for the approval of the the group and the the leader looks for the approval of the group the group looks for the approval of the leader in in, in a way Mm -hmm. and and so they sort of work in lockstep with with one another Mm -hmm. do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah 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 All right, we got uh, some, some surprise questions we should talk about oh, yeah, here. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, I got a few questions from the past two weeks that we didn't get to. I want to start with a
1: few of those, Ryan. Okay. Uh, Laura has a question for us. As social species, fashion is a way humans connect their personal style with cultural trends. How do we teach younger generations to find their own personal style without falling victims of the obsession with fashion trends? Why is there such a huge need... To be trendy now, Pete.
0: Laura is touching on something that we we touched on a little bit last time we were recording. I think it was the, the desire episode: um, mimetic beliefs versus personal beliefs. So Gerard talks about the the sort of mimetic beliefs, and so uh, she's saying personal style. I would ar- actually argue that that maps onto this. There's no such thing as personal style. It's no. it's all mimetic style yes. in a yeah. way, right? We we dress. At least somewhat similar, even even if it's, if it's going against, you know, I don't want to look like corporate America, so I'm going to dress in all black or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's going against that thing, and uh, I'm different just like everyone else yes. who, who's like me. Yeah, 100%. Even I, I you know, I, I wear a lot of black anyway, but I know unconsciously
2: when I was coming over here, I was like, oh, I I definitely wore all black because it's the, the the, it's the aesthetic of, <laughs> of the minimalist. And although I thought I was doing it freely, I yeah. put on this stuff, I'm going like, oh, but. I'm, I'm influenced by your desire, your, the structure of the minimalist aesthetic, mm-hmm, and yeah. nothing wrong with that. It's like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, so that's mimetic desire, mm-hmm. is that without even knowing it, where we're always constantly reading what we desire in relation to the other. Yeah.
1: Right. I, I love how uh, my sister, she said to me, why do you wear all black? And I was like, because I look best in black, so like, that's, that's what I'm gonna wear. And she was like, you kinda look like you're goth. And I was like, interesting. Like maybe someone would look at me walking down the street and be like, Oh, that's a goth." I don't think that I actually look goth because there's a lot more than just black clothes. Right. And it's my sister like ribbing me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it's interesting though. I actually could put the goth makeup on the goth hairstyle. Uh, uh, and, or or become like emo Ryan, Mm. (laughs) our our favorite vine video Uh ever. (laughs) Uh, yeah, it's, it's on Josh's Twitter somewhere. But, um, it's, it, but because of my personality, like I can't be goth. Mm. So it's interesting how, uh, to, to, answer this question head on, like, how do you get young people to not care about trends? It, it's, you get young people to care about their actions and you get young people to care about their personalities and how they treat people. Cause that's who you are. It's not just because you dress a certain way. Maybe you dress a certain way. Um, like, you know, let's say you're into sports and you're like, well, guys who are into sports dress this way. Like you're just, you're acting out who you already are, but dressing like someone you're not, isn't going to change your personality.
0: We, we see it as a shortcut, right? We often yeah. say, well, if I dress like that group of people, then I'm signaling to them that I am like them. Right. And that may be a piece of it, but if your actions and and behaviors don't align, you'll be, you'll be exposed as a fraud pretty quickly.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. yeah.
0: I mean, this this and this
2: connects with anxiety again. It's like what, what the young person does, you're 14 years old, you're you're differentiating from your family you're trying to find a new place to fit because of the anxiety of all the infinite choices you have and you don't know who you are and so you can see wanting to fit into groups as a way to you know mitigate against your anxiety so for me what one has to do if you've got a kid and they're a teenager is hopefully help them be able to tolerate and even enjoy a certain level of anxiety so they'll still You'll still connect with groups. You'll still have your style, but but you won't have to try to disappear. That's a, what an hysteric does. To be honest, is they 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 almost want to disappear through sacrifice. You know, someone who's always looking after their kids, always bringing their kids to hockey games or whatever, and they're almost like they want to disappear in in the other. Right? They're yeah. always serving, mm-hmm. serving, serving mm-hmm. to get rid of their anxiety, and it's um. You know, to disappear into the tribe, the group, what Kierkegaard calls the crowd, mm. to disappear into the crowd is a way to try to escape your freedom. Mm. And if you've been able to, if you're able to tolerate a certain amount of anxiety, you'll be part of a crowd, but you'll never be, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll be happy not to be completely sucked in. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I I mm. yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It does. We've got a question here from Katrina. How do you distinguish between what you actually need in your life? And what you just think you need in your
0: life, so Ryan and I, we if we're talking about physical objects, we'll start there, and then I'd love to hear what you have to say, Pete. Uh, and we have a minimalist rule book, the minimalists slash rule book. We don't actually think there is a real rule book, and so we just came up with sixteen rules for living with less. And one of them is called the no junk rule. I think quite often we we just have a bunch of items in our homes. The average American household has three hundred thousand items in it, and and I would separate. I say of those things, you could put. The, all of those things, 100% of them in one of three categories. Essential, non-essential, and junk. Essential are the things that we all need to, to live, right? We need mm-hmm. shelter and clothes and food and, and maybe a few other things. It's pretty universal uh, with some exceptions. Non-essential, those are the items that add value to our lives that we could live without them. Whether it is a couch or a dining room table, like I, I would be fine without it, but they... Augment or enhance, amplify my experience of life. Mm -hmm. And so they make my life better, either directly or indirectly. And then there's this third category, junk. The junk actually tends to get in the way of the non-essentials. And so I think most of what we own should fall into that non-essential category, the things that we purchase to add value to our life and be willing to let go of those if they stop adding value. Unfortunately, most of the things we own are in that third category. They're junk. The things that get in the way, the things we thought we need, the things we thought would add value to our lives Mm. because of all of these mimetic beliefs and the advertisements, telling us that if you buy this thing you'll be more complete and do you want the thing or did someone else tell you to want the thing mm-hmm. is the question I would ask and so most of the things we own are junk if we can get rid of the junk we can identify the junk and make room for the lack, we actually experience more joy and get more value from those non-essential things that will add value to our life. Now, how do we apply this to to other areas of life? The, the things that we need versus the things that we think we need. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's beautifully said. And like so much of this, and it's a topic
2: we've come back to a few times in the this, well, various interviews and discussions we've had, mm-hmm. um, is that if we need to somehow libidinally disinvest from the frenetic pursuit of something that will lack help us lack the lack you know we've got to somehow find a way to detach to have a community of people where we can enjoy the the, the lack right mm. so all of this comes down to that that's a very hard thing to do but the the core of my work is trying to help people Get to a point where they're not pursuing this sacred object, the object that will make them whole and complete, which just becomes junk as mm-hmm. soon as you've got it. Or it maybe it takes a year before it comes junk, but it becomes junk eventually. Is if we can do that, if enough people in a city or a world can do that, that will fundamentally change the economic world, the 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 um, the cultural and religious world. Like it'll fundamentally transform society if we can get enough people to libidinally disinvest from this pursuit. And that's what I think you guys are doing. You're part of this attempt to help thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people from disinvesting from a frenetic pursuit, still enjoying stuff. Mm -hmm. Because that's the funny thing about being human is we can't completely differentiate need from want. For example, we can't even, we can't be pure Need based, like even if you're just eating food, we eat particular types of food. You know, it's like we're not like an animal that just eats to for fuel, everything is and the dimension of need and want in it. Yeah, so even even the ascetic tends to pursue some wants, yes, there's Mm -hmm. all in there. So it's the junk that's the problem. Like, I like in three buckets. I thought (laughs) I'm making a point, that's right. right. (laughs) Um, the uh, yeah, so if we can find a way. To somehow disinvest from that pursuit, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. enjoy the lack, experience grace, mm-hmm. then I think that we will be freed from from this kind of perpetual kind of buying and consuming products and I think that that is not just personally useful, I think it's politically useful
1: yeah 100 percent yeah yeah i don't uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with having non-essential things mm-hmm. I think when we revolve our lives around Having non-essential—that's where the problem is—is is when we put our, uh, our experience of the lack of the lack into owning these non-essential things. That's where it becomes a problem. So, uh, you know, if this is a problem in whose question was that in Katrina's life, then you know, if, if it's getting in the way, the non-essential things. Are you trying to decide what's essential versus what's non-essential? Uh, you can do little stoical experiments. I mean, I love the idea of you know, living a monkish type lifestyle going without to really experience like, what are the things that truly adds value to my life? Um, Because if you think about it, that's what a monk does. They're just learning how to live with the lack. Mm, And once they learn how to live with the lack, everything beyond that is, is a blessing. It's, it's great that they can have it. So uh, yeah, Katrina, you could totally do stoical experiments that, you know, you don't have to totally be a monk, Mm. but you can live without some things and really decide whether or not it's something that's, uh, that's important in your life. But again, um, as the minimalist, we're not saying live only with the essentials.
0: Yeah, that's in fact, I think that's where the utilitarian argument starts to break down where where, where we're saying there are some non-essentials in your life, and by the way, they vary yeah. so dramatically. I don't need a wife. <laughs> I mean it's,
1: it's you know it's a non-essential yeah. that I really enjoy having in my life though. Yeah,
0: I, I mean I'm, I'm talking specifically about things, <laughs> yeah right. but but uh, you, Sean has a, a drum kit, right? Mm-hmm. He's a drummer. If you put a drum kit in my house, it's just going to collect dust, going to get junk. in the way. It right. is junk. Mm-hmm. For him, it is a non-essential, but it adds immense value to his life. Right. And so, uh, so, Sean, you have to get rid of that drum kit, or you can't work for us anymore. You're no longer a minimalist. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, yeah, I, I think the. When you, whether it's katrina or or anyone else who, who's starting to question the the non-essentials versus the junk realize that's relative but it's also relative for you with where you are in life you're not still playing with the same toys you were playing with when you're four years old mm-hmm. right because you you outgrow those things and as adults we tend to outgrow things as well so we need to continue to ask the question because we'll reach that horizon and we'll need to find a new one mm-hmm.
2: yeah Oh, go ahead. You go ahead. Oh, yeah, just, no, no, you go.
0: Yeah, because before you
2: moved on to another one, I just thought, yeah, this is what I meant by the difference between religions of hedonism, religions of nihilism, and the religion of the absurd, mm-hmm. right? So religions of hedonism say, you buy this, or you have this, you do the right thing, you marry the right person, you have enough money, whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then you'll be, everything will be wonderful. Mm-hmm. That's that, religions mm-hmm. of hedonism, secular and sacred. Religions of nihilism are get rid of your desire, get rid of everything but the bare minimum, just, you know, just... Stop desiring that's the way out the religion of the absurd is a kind of weird thing where you go We do desire we do want things But we don't frenetically try and find the thing that will fix everything Mm. And so weirdly you're in this thing of you do want things you maybe want a better car You want to just this or that but you're freed from this, you know seeking after it. So basically if you feel you're in the religion of nihilism or religion of hedonism, there's the problem. But in the middle, there's like, you can desire, you can have stuff, but you're not like caught up in the, the suffering of it. It's yes. the, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Talk to me about raveling and mm. unraveling. Oh yeah. I love this. Yeah, I
2: mean, that's an example of earlier when we talked about the lack of the secret to the secret of the lack, mm-hmm. is to unravel is the, is the experience of coming apart. The experience coming apart and the first it time it has a negative connotation yeah like the first time you you know, question your cultural or religious background you feel like you're under threat of unraveling of everything coming apart and we think that what we need to do is knit ourselves together again <laughs> either keep the thing that we've got together or find the thing that works so move from one religion to another for example mm-hmm. um, whereas uh, I argue that we need to move from unraveling to raveling so not from unraveling to knitting together but to raveling and the funny thing about raveling is to ravel means to pull apart it's exactly the same as unraveling it means exactly the same thing mm. <laughs> but it doesn't have that negative on in fact you know? it has a
0: positive it sounds yeah. positive yeah. to yeah me.
2: Mm. you're raveling uh-huh. you're revel in your raveling, right you're 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 it's it's this beautiful experience of going yeah i'm pulling things apart i'm questioning, I'm doubting and there's life in this. Mm. So the movement is not say from unraveling to to holding it all together but to rather just change your position with regards to the experience of unraveling Mm. and see within it something deeply positive. That's what I meant by you go into the doubt and then you find something that is secure in the doubt. You go into the chaos and you find something that's peaceful in the chaos. You go into the darkness and you find something that is light within it. Mm -hmm. That's why an analysis, they will push you to the place you do want to go they don't do that because they're sadists right oh i'm going to make you talk about your family because i know it's going to make you suffer um the point is you haven't talked about you're you're repressing it all you're trying to not go open that door within you Mm. and in analysis they go right you got to open that door and you got to walk in because they know that in there you will find healing it the wound is the healing yeah um, yeah.
0: i think that's what we're trying to do with minimalism and people often see it as an unraveling i can't even think about getting rid of my stuff they don't think about it in the way of like maybe it's just raveling it's getting rid of the excess so that i can make room for the lack i can make room uh, for you i i can i can revel in that lack yeah uh, so, so to speak
2: because there's only two things you can do with lack I would argue and philosophically speaking right, you can't get rid of it so you've got two options mm. you either find a way to embrace it within yourself mm-hmm. or you'll get someone else to carry it you'll push mm. it onto somebody else so mm. that's what scapegoating is like, funnily enough scapegoating was a good thing right? in religion the idea was we would all be fighting we're in community Now then we get into fights and all the problems and so then what we do is we jointly blame the goat We create a goat and we say, the goat's the problem. Mm. And then we kill the goat and we're all happy for a year. And then we all start to fight again. And then we get another goat and we kill the goat, right? (laughs) So the scapegoat kind of like holds the community together. Yeah. The problem is, of course, it doesn't solve the issue. It's band-aid. Yeah, band-aid. So the idea with someone like Girard is that we have to find a way to sacrifice the sacrifice. So there's a sacrificial model and then we have to sacrifice the sacrificial model which just means we all realize that the goat we're putting our lack and our suffering and our we're putting it onto the goat but that's actually something we have to carry yeah. we have to accept we have to realize that the conflict that's within us we're going to have to somehow make room for that yeah. and get away for it to work well yeah. and and when you do that then you know you haven't got rid of the lack but you've robbed it of its sting and by the yes. way, sin just means lack. Original sin means original lack. So, so whenever mm-hmm. you read it uh, religiously, you shall rob death of its sting. Mm-hmm. All it means is, can I say one thing about this? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is yeah. that um, if, if I pay a debt, right? A debt is a nothingness. It's a lack. Yeah. Um, if I have no money, that's nothing. But if i have a debt that's a nothing that's something right mm. it's a or if i'm not talking to you because we're both just enjoying a walk that's not speaking mm. if i'm not talking to you because i'm angry that's not speaking right that's something so, yeah. yeah so there's two types of nothingness nothing that's nothing and nothing that's something mm. right so the the challenge in life is how do we render nothing that is something into a nothing that is nothing <laughs> and what that means is there's two ways to deal with the debt which is a nothingness of something, where you have to do jobs you despise, you work too hard and it causes you a heart attack. Two things you can do. You can pay a debt, which means you fill the lack with money. Mm. Right? You go, oh, I owe you $10,000, there's someone's gonna pay that debt.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Or you can forgive a debt. To forgive a debt means you don't pay it, but you render the nothingness that is something into a nothingness that is nothing. Mm. I go, there's no 10,000, you don't owe me anything. Now, I think the forgiveness of debt is the central notion here, is that we always try to pay our debts. We try to fill the lack with cars and people and and, and a reputation. We always try to pay the debt, fill the lack, Mm. but what we need is to experience forgiveness of the lack and forgiveness of the lack is, oh, you still have it, but you've robbed it of its sting Mm. and now you can have joy within it.
0: I'm with you 100% except on the actual monetary debt. We're, we're completely against monetary debt uh, for a whole bunch of complicated... Well,
2: exactly. Oh, no, I'm totally against... That's the problem. Problem. Right. yeah. Right, and, and
0: so, so I mean, the people who are listening to this, all I would say is is this is an encouragement to go out and get into debt, whether that's literal debt or, or sort of metaphorical debt. What you're saying is the, that sometimes people are indebted to you and one of the best things, one of the kindest, most humane things you might be able to do is... Is is forgive forgive yeah forgive that
1: debt makes me think about uh, relationships. Oftentimes, we get caught up in holding account, yeah. And when we feel like we have given more uh, than the person uh, has given in the relationship, there's a debt that we start to form in ourselves. Where we're like we're waiting for our partner to do these acts of appreciation or kindness or whatever it is to fill that void. But yeah, the best thing you can do is just look at them and love them for who they are and right. <laughs>
2: that's exactly what forgiveness is it's yeah. like
1: there's an indebtedness there's something that you feel
2: you're indebted to me you're angry about it you're frustrated about it I forgive you mm-hmm. it, it simply means that I render that nothing nothing yeah. and that makes you go oh that's, I feel I feel lighter yeah. um, and you're absolutely right this is like debt. funny thing is in our society there is no forgiveness of debt except for bankruptcy and even then you have to pay your student loans in america so um yeah. so debt yeah just simply is that metaphor for whatever that lack is in in our life that mm. we feel like we have to fill it's like no no you don't have to fill it you mm. have to be in a space where you can experience forgiveness from it yeah
1: mm. yeah nick has a question for us right how much is too much is it too much if we have to ask that yeah, Maybe. <laughs>
0: so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes, uh, quite often, yes. If you're asking like if you're asking the question like do I have too much stuff? You probably have too much yeah. stuff. Yeah. Right? Um but not not necessarily, right? It, so so how much is too much? I think in order to answer that question, you first have to identify what enough is. Mm. Because if you haven't identified what enough is, then you're always going to be seeking too much even too much won't be enough Mm. for you right yeah and so uh we need to get really clear on what enough is and i think the fascinating part about this is we often think enough is such is so grandiose so massive so beyond our current capabilities even but realizing we probably already have more than enough right now and the key to get to enough isn't acquiring more it's actually getting rid of some of what we already have yeah yeah
2: Yeah, it's almost like I think enough is probably this magical point that you can never get. And that's the fun thing about it, because you'll either have too little or too much. And enough is when you can enjoy just kind of being in that space. You know, you'll (laughs) never you'll never get to the point where you go like me with my apartment. And Mm -hmm. it's it's minimal. I chuck out as much as I can, but still never it still feels like I could do a little bit more. You're always calibrating. Calibrating. (laughs) And that and the, the. the trick is to enjoy that (laughs) yes yeah Yeah, to enjoy the calibration
1: yeah and i mean that's how i look at minimalism it's just it's a it's a tool to help you constantly calibrate the the Mm. possessions in your life but not not just the physical possessions but yeah the relationships we have the the jobs we seek the education we take i mean it's always a constant balance i mean i think of you know someone who has too much instantly i think of a hoarder and uh to be a hoarder is actually really easy Mm-hmm. You know, you just like, you just say yes to everything and you take right. everything. It's
0: so much more difficult to say no. And it, yeah. because you're saying, it's not saying no in perpetuity. That's the Spartanism thing. Mm-hmm. It's saying yes to only the most appropriate things. And that changes that. That's the calibration. And I think the difference that we have here is we can choose to enjoy the calibration or we can, we can choose to make that calibration the, the reason for our suffering mm. and the reason for our discontent, and I'll never be it will never be right until I'm done calibrating. Well, maybe it will only be right if you can continue yeah. to calibrate.
2: Mm. Can I? Can I tell you a quick parable? Yeah,
0: I've got time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, Let's do it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, quick parable is from Aesop, uh, and Aesop says about this guy who's a hoarder, mm-hmm. and he has this treasure at the bottom of his garden under a tree, and every week. He digs it up, he counts it, he puts it back, right? <laughs> um, and he does this for years. But eventually there's a thief, sees this, and during the week comes, steals the treasure, and just, just kind of leaves the hole empty. Mm. So the guy next week comes down, sees that there's nothing there, starts to cry and wail. Mm. And uh, neighbors come around and go, what's wrong, what's wrong? And the miser says, oh, I have this treasure. It, every week I count it, and now it's been stolen. And one of the people says, well, what did you ever do with it? Did you buy things with it? Did you use it? And he says, oh, no, no, I'd never use it. And then one of the neighbors picks up some stones and says, well, count those. It'll do you as much good. Right? <laughs> so that's Aesop's Fable. Simone Weil asked the question, what does the miser lose when they lose their fortune? And she's probably thinking about Aesop's Fable. Because the the question we have to ask is, what did the miser lose? Because they didn't lose anything that they were using, right? They they weren't spending it. They didn't lose any
1: power, really. didn't lose any power, didn't use any wealth.
2: Yeah, lost potential Mm -hmm. and and potentially they lost what's called the fetish object. So a fetish object is an object that you know is not magical, but you treat it as if it is. Mm. And the typical miser is someone often who lives in poverty, they've got bad relationships with their family, all of that stuff. But as long as they have this bunch of money, that prevents them from experiencing the the horror of their life. As long mm-hmm. as they've got that thing, mm-hmm. that treasure at the bottom of the garden, somehow they don't see all of the crap that's in their life. Mm-hmm. When they lose the fetish object, they're confronted by the poverty of their life.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So in psychoanalysis, there's an idea that sometimes we have fetish objects, objects that it, it, maybe it's a relationship with somebody or maybe it's, it's um, you know, I had a, People who their their son that died, and they kept the room exactly as it was. Mm-hmm, yeah. And while the room was exactly as it was, it kind of prevented them, in a good way, for a while, f- experiencing the full trauma. But yeah. when they took the room apart, then all of this emotion came.
0: But postpone the trauma.
2: Exactly. So it kind of helped for a while, but eventually they had to get rid of the fetish object in order to, to deal, with deal with the everything. trauma head on. Yeah. So sometimes what we do in our society is we are always buying stuff and we're always getting stuff because in a way that prevents us from looking at other areas of our lives Mm -hmm. that are not good that are where maybe our relationships with our family or our partners are not good Mm -hmm. and and what we need to do is if we can see that the treasures that we have are actually there as a way of preventing us from looking at what we really need to look at. Mm. Once we see that, mm-hmm. start to fix the things in our lives that need fixed, we no longer need the treasure.
0: And this manifests mm. in other ways. So the treasure can be literal or it could be the yeah. physical things, yeah. but it can be the other things that we we dedicate our time to so that we avoid dealing with what that which is more important. So it could be uh, workaholism, it could be pornography, it could be food. Working isn't bad. I would argue that porn isn't inherently evil, uh, and 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 certainly food is is actually necessary, right? Right. But any of these things can be detrimental to us when they become sort of this, you know, the 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 fetish object in Mm -hmm. in a way because they well they they get in the way the same way that our stuff can get in the way.
3: Yeah.
2: Because to be honest with you, here's a terrible thing. Sadly, as most of us. And I thankfully, um, I'm not in the situation. So I, I feel really for, for most people who are have to do jobs that they don't like, that they don't get value from, even mm-hmm. if they're well paid, they're alienated, as in they're, they're giving five or six hours of their day mm-hmm. every day of the week to something that doesn't give them necessarily inherent value. Yeah, And so sometimes our frenetic pursuit of buying a new iPhone or the new car is a way for us to avoid confronting the fact that we're maybe doing a job that we hate, that we're we're alienated from what we're doing. And mm-hmm. I think, to be honest, when I look at adverts, for example, I often feel that, that they're a way for us to. And I understand it's just like those that couple whose son died and they had the room exactly as it was because they couldn't bear to look at the suffering straight away. Mm-hmm. In the same way, we might be in a job that we really don't like. We may be in a situation that is really difficult. Mm -hmm. And so we think about the iPhone. We go on the computer and look at the new cars to purchase because that prevents us from having to look at that. Nothing wrong with that. But here's the problem is then we don't, we don't look at the thing and then we can't change it.
3: Mm-hmm. There's, there's
2: something b- beautiful Karl Marx said, actually, when he was talking about religion, we all know he said, religion's the opium of the people. Yeah, yeah, the communists, yeah, yeah. But everyone knows that religion's the opium of the people, I know that. But he goes on to say, it's quite beautiful actually, he says, you know, religion is the opium of the people. He says, it's the heart of a heartless nation, it's the soul of a soulless condition. Mm. And then he says, religion is the imaginary flowers on the chains of our oppression we must get rid of the imaginary flowers, not so that we see the chains in despair, but so that we see the chains and break them so that we can pick living flowers. Mm. Now, I just like, it's quite a quite a poetic thing. But what he's basically saying is, if we put it in the context of looking at the new car, the new iPhone or whatever, that's the opium of the people today. Yeah. The advertising is the opium of the people. It prevents us, it's the imaginary flowers and the chains of our oppression. Mm. So it, it prevents us from really looking at maybe the jobs that we hate and all of that
3: mm-hmm.
2: we have to get rid of the imaginary flowers not so that we despair but so that we can break the chains which means maybe find a better job maybe do something else maybe take those difficult choices and then be able to pick living flowers yeah because as anna freud says that in your dreams you can make the perfect omelet you just can't eat it mm-hmm. which means that we can fantasize about the perfect life that we want. And that's lovely. The only thing is we can't be in it. Mm. The, the omelet that we really make is never going to be as good as the omelet that we imagine, but you can eat it. Mm. And, and, and I would love to see how we can, you know, free ourselves from the consumerism that prevents us sometimes from looking at the trauma of our lives. That's totally understandable. Mm-hmm. But so that we can look at it and maybe make some hard decisions about how to pick living flowers. Yeah,
1: yeah. And it's 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 hard to look at that trauma. I mean, it's, yeah, that's why we go to that's the easy e- we, we go to the easy things. Yeah. yeah, the easy pacifiers. Ryan, we got a question here from Life Pockets. Life Pockets, I'd love to know how you deal with guilt when you do slip up. I've stopped unnecessary material purchases, but sometimes I cave and make spontaneous purchases, which then led to guilt. How do you react to this? You know, what's funny about this is... I chew my nails. That's how I react to all my guilt.
0: Well, the framing (laughs) of the question is fascinating, right? Because she says here that I've stopped unnecessary material purchases, but sometimes I make unnecessary material purchases. (laughs) (laughs) And and like, there's a weird sort of denial here, right? And and what what role does denial play in, in guilt? Can I
2: tell you a story from Ireland that I think Mm -hmm. fits with this? Mm -hmm. This guy goes to this bar every week. This guy, Seamus, right? And he always (laughs) orders four pints of beer, Uh right? So always orders four pints and drinks four pints of Guinness. Bam, does this every week. One week he comes in and he orders three pints of Guinness, and uh, the bar man's pouring the Guinness. Says Seamus, he says you always buy four pints of Guinness, never ask why. Now suddenly it's three pints of Guinness. What's going on? And Seamus says, oh, he says, he says to be honest with you, he says I have. I have two brothers and a father, and they're all in different parts of the world. And so every week, little ritual, I order a pint for all of us, a drink in honor of all of us. Right? That's beautiful. But he said, very sad to say, my father passed away, so I'm just having a drink now for me and for my two brothers. Mm. That's a beautiful ritual. Sorry for your loss, right? Mm. So six months goes by, and then Seamus comes in, and he orders two pints of Guinness. Mm. And the barman feels a bit guilty and says, like, I don't want to pry, but has something happened to one of your brothers? And Seamus says, no, 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 he says, no, no, he says, doctor's orders, I've had to stop drinking.
3: Right. um, So, uh, so that I think that's yeah, that's a structure that we're all in. In a way, we can
2: sometimes like be talking about environmental issues while making an unnecessary journey or whatever. Is that we bizarrely do the very activity that we're disavowing? So yeah, that's very yeah. Oh, that's Um, so good. Yeah, that
0: is good. So, so if I'm talking to to life pockets here, uh, the, the thing is, what you're saying is. I'm imperfect, yeah, and I acknowledge, Which we all that are. yeah, you are imperfect, yeah, uh, wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> no i and, and so of course you you might slip up, uh or you might just realize the 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 purchase you you made to be more charitable here you thought might be necessary or or value adding in a way mm-hmm. was not it did not accomplish the thing that you wanted. Now you can of course set some boundaries up beforehand to help you make better decisions going forward, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's simple rules you can set, like what we call the 3030 rule. It's basically like if something costs more than 30 bucks, wait 30 hours. Oh. It at least gives you some time to reflect and you realize in that time, like, oh, the thing I thought I needed I don't actually need and probably won't get much value from. Yeah. And so I'm going to abstain from that. There also we have this thing, six questions asked before buying, but one of those questions is is this the best use of this money? Because money is a a resource that um, is not unlimited, at least not for most of us. And and so if I have a 100 bucks and I can afford to buy this $100 thing, is that the best use of this $100? Or would I get more value from spending that $100 in a different way? Mm. And so there's some questions I think you can ask uh, before you make the purchase. But If you are in that that position now where you have made the purchase it's a sunk cost and you're going to have to move on because Mm. you or you can continue to carry that guilt with you in perpetuity but i don't think it's going to serve you much if you continue to cling to it
2: that's true and
0: and you could in light of the
2: conversation we've had is also go oh that guilt that i'm feeling that's a sign of my freedom because like (laughs) in terms of this whole conversation it's like saying that what what that person what was the person's name sorry life pockets life pockets Rather nice name <laughs> lp yeah lp lp's LP experiencing is this this being between who they are and who they would like to be mm-hmm. right um and we all live between who we are who we'd like to be what we have what we'd like to have and that experience of guilt is that experience of one's freedom and if you can just shift your experience of that, you can go, yeah, you might want to change or whatever, but that shows that you're human, mm. you know? So I go like, yeah. So you snap at me mm-hmm. um, and say, I I then, you feel guilty. So mm-hmm. you feel guilty because mm-hmm. you snapped at me. If I, you know, we're, we're in a relationship and I say to you, it's okay, like I know you're stressed. That's a forgiveness of debt. I so the lack yeah. and the guilt that you're feeling, the debt that you're feeling is now dissipated and then that actually leads to an improvement in one's behavior so that's the kind of logic that i'm talking about and this is displacement as well so displacement is is where you take anger that's that's generated in one place and you put it somewhere else so a really obvious example is if you have a child and uh you're having to get up and look after the kid all the time you can get annoyed at your kid yeah but you can't be annoyed at your kid because your kid's a baby so you shout at your partner Right. right. Everyone knows that happens. Yeah. And, yeah. and so your partner goes like, oh, you're displacing mm-hmm. or you had a tough day at work. You can't shout at your boss or you'll get fired. Mm-hmm. So you come home when you shout at your partner. Right. And your partner, if it's a healthy relationship, will go, oh, yeah, that's displacement. They had a difficult day at work. They accept it.
0: That takes a lot of maturity to get there, though. Well, yeah, it does yeah. bit. Yeah. But
2: if if you have that and then they forgive you, as in they go, oh, it's okay. Listen, I know you, you've had to get up three times tonight and, and feed the kid. Mm-hmm. So the fact you shouted at me, I completely understand. Don't even give it a second's thought. You experience the forgiveness. You the the guilt diminishes, mm-hmm. and 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 you will probably you know improve the behavior over
1: time. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think the best way to uh, get your partner to that maturity level is you start to do it yourself. Because mm. I know with um, like Mariah and I will. I don't know. It's like the silliest things. Uh, like, we'll start, I'll start talking about, I don't know, like masks, for example. Mm-hmm. And I'll say like, I could see why people are at this place where they're upset with masks. And then Mariah will say, we, this isn't an actual argument. I'm just trying to think of an example. And then she'll say something like, yeah, yeah, but people shouldn't be at that place. And uh, people should just wear their masks. I'm like, yeah, I know. But I'm just trying to say that here's why they got, and we start to like butt heads on a silly subject. Mm-hmm. Like I'll stop and I'll be like, all right, like this is like getting we're getting angry for no reason about this subject that has nothing to do with our immediate lives. Yeah, well, that's what he was talking about earlier with the uh, the
0: creationism, where yeah. someone that you respected came along and said, "Hey, this doesn't matter." And sometimes I think
1: we could do that in our yeah, own relationship. Yeah, and like, right? and yeah, and so when you step up to be that mature person, it makes your partner want to be that mature mature person also.
2: Oh, absolutely. That's why we used to do a thing called the Evangelism Project, mm-hmm. where we went. I took a group of people to be evangelized by a different say religion and the idea was not so much that you were evangelized by the other religion but partly that you saw yourself through their eyes you would see Mm. yourself better and you'd be evangelized you'd be drawn to be better but what happened in that interaction is in in being open to letting the other speak into your life they become more open to you also you speaking into their life and the, the whole thing breaks open. So mm. I imagine, say you're Republican, you're Democrat.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In traditionally, uh, if you're Republican, you're trying to convince him to be a Republican. If you're a right. Democrat, you're trying to convince him to be Democrat. Mm. Sure. But in this different environment, imagine you came in and you said, I'm not gonna try and make you a Republican. I think you can make me a better Republican. There's something I'm missing because mm. I don't know why you're not a Republican. Like you're just this hippy-dippy whatever, right. I think, right? But actually, but then maybe there's something I'm missing. Mm. So tell me what I'm missing. And vice versa, you say, well, I can't imagine why you'd be a Republican. I can't, like, that's a terrible thing. But am I missing something? Maybe you can make me a better Democrat. Yeah. And weirdly now, instead of trying to make each other the opposite, you, the other person becomes an instrument of your further transformation, mm. a, an instrument of your further conversion. And then both sides kind of move forward. Mm. And there's one last thing on that. Is that I do think that, The majority of times that I see people falling for each other and and, and really being drawn to each other, one factor I see is very important is that often they feel that they can say anything to the other, that the other can bear the weight of them and forgive them. Mm. So forgiveness is such a powerful thing that sometimes to meet someone who says, yeah, I can can take your lack, Mm. I can cope with it and I can forgive your lack Mm. because I know that that's where this desire happens and transformation happens.
0: Yeah. We
1: totally. got one more question here from Sarah. And just to clarify, it, I'm a communist and he is a libertarian and we're trying to uh, yeah. <laughs> you're trying to convince <laughs> right. To be exactly, one of the other exactly. exactly. <laughs> All right, uh, from Sarah, what is Marie Kondo missing out on? You know, here's the fascinating <laughs> thing. So we've been getting these questions about Marie Kondo
0: recently just because she's sort of the, the Joel Osteen of our space. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that pejoratively. Oh, yeah. um, I, I just mean it that she's really well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, she brings forth a positive message that sometimes we might disagree with. Right. And, and I think the biggest disagreement isn't actually with her. And I I, want to compare this to your um, fascination with someone like Joel Osteen. Mm -hmm. Um, I think quite often maybe your biggest disagreements with Joel Osteen aren't with Joel Osteen. It's the perception Mm. of of Joel Osteen in a way. Mm -hmm. And and so with Marie Kondo, I think sometimes people confuse what she's doing with – or just organizing your stuff, and so uh, Marie Kondo is a sort of professional organizer, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that that with Marie Kondo, who wrote this really fascinating book, Life Changing Magic of Tidying Up, it mm-hmm. sold like a bajillion copies, and um, and and has popularized the the sort of movement of improving the aesthetics in in your home, which I think is important. But I also think that form should Uh, follow function not the other way around and I think when amateurs approach this idea of organizing I was a very organized hoarder organizing doesn't fix the problem it hides the problem it can mask Mm -hmm. the problem however if combined with Actually, solving the problem, organizing is a way to sort of, you know, make a space more more beautiful. Uh, the the real problem, though, is is the overindulgent consumption, the consumerism that's going on. And I think sometimes organizing can can sort of miss out on 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 the problem itself. Let's talk about Joel Joel Osteen though.
2: Oh yeah. Well, one thing on that, just I thought very quickly is. You know, in the same way that some people and famous people um, have uh, eating disorders, but they hide them as dietitians, right? So they they have an obvious eating disorder, but somehow um, it's hidden in terms of, like, uh, this is a a, a type of diet, right? So Mm. we've seen that kind of thing. Interesting, yeah. yeah. In the same way, um, uh, tidiness can be a way of hiding an obsessive-compulsive disorder. Yeah. Yeah. So I know someone who their garage is completely perfect and it's completely perfect because everything has to be in place Mm -hmm. because the one thing that's not in place is a part of themselves and so they're always mm. trying to so the tidiness actually um hides um something that needs to be addressed mm-hmm. just like sometimes you see someone with a one of these people on instagram who's got this incredibly weird diet that they're making a living from mm-hmm. <laughs> but you go like that's a barely disguised eating disorder right? Right. so anyway yeah that's
0: i i see the point yeah yeah but joel Osteen, sorry What what's well, um, <laughs> well, yeah. fascinating is when, when we're asking you know what is what is Marie Kondo missing out on? And when I, when I map that really onto like, there's a misunderstanding there. And, uh, it, it's even with, with her, it's an extra step because of the language barrier. She, she's Japanese and, uh, does not, she's not a native English speaker. And so the translations actually go literally through a different person. So, so, so she's
1: missing out on the English language is what you're saying.
0: Uh, well, yeah, we're missing out on all the other languages. Oh all, yeah. All 5,999 other languages. Yeah, right? right. Um, and, and so when 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 I look at, at her and I look at you, you have a a fascin- fascination with Joel Osteen in a way. Like I, I don't know if it's the the prosperity gospel side of things that you're fascinated with. I, I don't know if it's uh, what what I'm fascinated with is is you have this. Uh, some people call him a heretic, which I'm sure that label's been hurled at you as well. Um, it, while other people will say he's too conservative. And so like it's it's this strange the 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 strange dynamic i i often want nuance but there's almost this like weird binary nuance that's going on there well, the tr- truth is i don't know much about him at all like what i was
2: do- like my thing was um when I unfollowed everybody on Twitter because wow. I was getting sick of social media, I thought, "Oh, it'd be funny to follow one person," mm-hmm. and it just happened that I chose Joel Osteen. But so I don't know. But so I wouldn't want to. I almost feel like when you say fascinating, it's like whenever um, you say, "Say you got this," uh, you're into pigs. You've got a little you've got a little uh, little uh, china pig in your house. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly someone goes, oh, you got a china pig, I'm going to buy you one for your birthday. Oh, and then someone right. buys you one for Christmas, and then you've got china pigs everywhere. <laughs> I'm worried that that's going to happen with Joel Osteen. I picked it randomly, and then in the future, I'm going to get lots of Joel Osteen stuff. Right,
0: right, right. <laughs> you know, care package with like, a bunch of Joel yes, books. that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, you no, know, I mean, uh, I think there's there's something there, though. There, there, mm-hmm. there, but there's a reason exactly behind the, reason, yeah. the, the following, right? Exactly. Is, he is a avatar of sorts, yes. mm. right? So let's talk about that avatar, because Marie Kondo, in, in many ways, is this avatar as well.
2: Right. No, 100%, so Jewelstein, like, yeah, it wasn't a random choice. Like, you could always, if you do a random choice, you go like, why did I choose that? Mm-hmm. And it's because something about him is about kind of the religion of hedonism. It's getting the thing. They're getting the promise. Mm. and they, uh, And that's kind of, in a sense, what I'm kind of trying to free people from. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the irony of following them when it's exactly that that I'm trying to free people from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, that's the connection. And the funny thing is about prosperity churches, people go, why, why are people involved in prosperity churches when it's obvious they don't work, mm-hmm. right? So, people think, oh, if only I just educated a person. So you're going to a prosperity church. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna show you the evidence to show that no higher percentage of people get rich from being a prosperity church (laughs) than the community they're in. Then suddenly you're gonna be freed from it. Of course that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why does a prosperity church work? And I would say it's precisely because it doesn't work. It's Mm. precisely because every time you go, the the, um, the carrot is dangled in front of you, Mm. which makes you really want it. And not getting it is actually what makes it even more desirable. So the fact that you can't get it, but you're so close, like if actually it worked, you wouldn't go. You get lots of money and you go, oh, well, now you know, I'm done. I'm done. And I got a better shower, but it didn't fix the existential gap in my life. You know, yeah. suddenly you'd find that money doesn't work. But, mm-hmm. but, but when you don't have it and it's dangled as the answer, it makes you even more invested in it. So it's a
0: different view on the joy of missing out, though, right? Yeah. This is a, a, a joy in missing out. Yes. Uh, and, and so we, we often pursue these things that. That we can't have. There are healthy versions of that. And uh, yeah, and they're unhealthy. And there's maybe this is something in between. No. Actually, uh, well,
2: that's it, a brilliant example, Bob. Because you're right.
0: Because there is a joy that people are getting from
2: going to a prosperity church, mm-hmm. and I would say the difference is you're not. People aren't enjoying their enjoyment and that's the Mm. trick so there's always an enjoyment Mm. when someone's frenetically pursuing something there's always an enjoyment but the person is not enjoying their enjoyment they're Mm. suffering from it so the difference for me is when you come to enjoy your enjoyment then you've 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 cracked the the case And you
0: have the real prosperity
2: yes exactly and then you and then you'll you won't be addicted to prosperity church anymore because you'll you're kind of yeah. You're you're not suffering in your enjoyment. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah. Being a Jehovah's Witness, I think there's a bit of prosperity gospel with that because you know you're supposed to be blessed. Your prayers will be answered. Uh-huh. You know if you do the right things. And it's funny because I tell people when I you know was a very hardcore practicing Jehovah's Witness, about half of my prayers got answered. Mm-hmm. And then when I stopped being a Jehovah's Witness. About half of my prayers get answered. <laughs> yes, is it the other half now. <laughs> right, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yes, right, right, exactly.
3: Yeah.
0: Uh, that's good <laughs> um, but anything we should we should sum sum up this conversation with Pete? Is, is there anything worth uh, worth circling back on and, and expanding upon? We, we we talked a lot about um religion versus atheism and how those are sort of, those might be two sides of the same coin yeah, In fact, we
2: never, we didn't get too much to that unfortunately yeah. but maybe next time i want to be numbered i want to beat this other guy all right who's, all who's right. this guy who's T- got ck C- coleman. coleman you'll yeah. love him we, yeah, he's, we he's we really just awesome get the
0: two of you in a room together that's my ultimate <laughs> uh hope is that we can just have the two of them replace us on this podcast <laughs> right out. slowly but surely <laughs> yeah, we'll have tk and peter rollins and they'll just be the minimalist yeah, it'll be great yeah, that's great uh, do we get royalties or something? I don't know how <laughs> it works. Like Twenty percent. Yeah, right. Yeah. Perfect. Beautiful. Perfect. Um, yeah, the 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 atheism and religion thing. Just to, to, we'll put a button on that, and we we can save that for for next time. You you do this uh, atheism for Lent, mm. which uh, mm. is fascinating. Um, but I think quite often we 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 move from one extreme to the other, and and I when we do that. It's never embracing the lack. It's the opposite yeah. of, of mm-hmm. that, right?
1: It's fleeing from it, yeah. 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 Well, Atheism for Lent. That is... <laughs> that's like the ultimate <laughs> sacrifice for Lent. <laughs> yeah, right. If, if that's you're that's a believer, I love it. Yeah, no, yeah, it's great. Yeah.
0: <laughs> All right, well, Peter Rollins. I want to encourage people to check you out. PeterRollins.com. Here, check out <laughs> his uh, Patreon as well. We'll put a link to that in, in the show notes and his podcast, The Fundamentalists. You can find that wherever good podcaster. Not bad, sold.
2: Bad podcast as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 all the podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pete, thank you so much, brother. Yeah, man, Thanks, guys, Appreciate love it. you, man. Love you,
0: brother. Thank Thanks. You. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. Thanks, patrons. Couldn't do it without you.
3: The minimalists. <laughs>